Hi, I'm Ben. And I'm Josh. And this is the Bad at Magic Podcast, a podcast about games, life, and other things, and welcome to episode 82. So, Ben, I'm going to take a departure from the normal here, and I'm going to talk about 82, because 82 was unique in all of the numbers that I have researched so far. It, why is that a departure from the normal? Well, because normally I Google for five minutes tops, and I find something interesting about a number. Okay, uh-huh. Pick okay. a number. In the, this, I, is, I this was bound to happen, Josh. I assumed that every number had something interesting to do with it, and you could yeah. just, I could just pluck it from the ether at my convenience. Well, Ben, 82 proved to be the number that has nothing interesting associated with it okay. at all. That's awesome. I remember this ESPN ad, link in the show notes, where there was a bunch of men sitting around crying and holding their heads in their hands because it was Black Wednesday. And apparently in in 1996, there was a day where there were no professional sports. <laughs> <laughs> so, nor- so like, 82 is that number. 82 is the Black Wednesday of numbers. Yeah. So like I said, I usually take five minutes tops, like tops to like read, like find something, read about it, put it in the show notes. Done. Bingo, bingo. I spent literally two full hours on Whoa. multiple days this week, and I Listeners, could find that nothing. is how dedicated Josh is to this podcast. I don't know why. <laughs> I usually do it like right before the podcast starts. I don't know why. It's like the the universe gave me a hint that this one's. It took be you two hours to find something interesting about the number eighty two. This had better be good. No, I spent two hours and I couldn't find anything interesting oh. about eighty two. And that's the that's so I finally re- recognized like oh. That's the interesting thing about 82. There is nothing interesting about 82. I I like it. It's the atomic number of lead. Who cares? Um, The 82nd parallel north passes through only two countries, Canada and then Greenland eight different times. Um, (laughs) What? The Mark 82 bomb is a general purpose 500 pound dumb bomb that the Air Force drops and then they slap like electronics on it and call it something different. But it's the base of like all of the bombs we have. But that's it. I mean, like that, those are the most interesting things about eighty two, and it's stupid. It's it, they're just dumb. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Well, eighty two. Congratulations on being the Black Wednesday of numbers. I'm going to tell you right now, Ben. We need to knock this one out of the park because if this episode of the podcast is fantastic, I'm going to update the Wikipedia entry for eighty two. <laughs> I'm going to say we could now say the Bad at Magic podcast episode 82 is the only interesting thing about the number 82. That that's what I'm hoping for. Yes. So All right. Bring your A game, buddy. Great. Okay. Well, then it's time for some follow up. And last time you and I had talked about the 75th anniversary of the United States Air Force, and I think you had a little bit of an addendum. So we we talked for a long time about the history of the Air Force in that in that episode, and one thing that I never got around to talking about, and it's because it's very controversial is the over-representation of pilots and the things that pilots do in the Air Force. Okay? Hmm, what do you mean by that? So every, everything that we talked about was talking about like, oh, this colonel was this fighter pilot or this guy was, you know, started the, the Little Vittles program and he was a pilot and he dropped it out of his plane or whatever. Like we talked about the Berlin Airlift and the Little Vittles. What we didn't talk about was the thousands of logistics troops that never set foot in an airplane that made that entire thing possible. We never... Okay. It's not just that, but I always had this issue when I was in the Air Force was because I was a support troop the way you're a support troop. But like pilots are in charge of everything. Okay, so Air Force, the United States Air Force follows the rule of the iceberg, which is it has a certain degree of buoyancy and the part that floats above the water is what you see. And it's just a small part of the overall thing. Right. 
and and I get that. And that's it's the same thing with every other service. Is you have the people at the very top, and those are the people that get noticed and like people associate the force with. And then there's the iceberg of everybody that's working underneath them. But I think the Air Force is distinct and unique because the leadership that were pilots in their during their life and the upbringing have a much more, it's a very different career field because I, I was in a unique position where I grew up as a support troop and then I finished my career as a pilot, living a pilot life. Oh, you crossed over. Yes. Because I think anyone that's not a pilot in the Air Force has had that experience where they meet a stranger or a relative and they go, oh, you're in the Air Force. Are you a pilot? Oh, and yeah, everybody like enlisted the same way. Like, oh, do you fly planes? Like, no, I there's there's a thousand jobs in the Air Force that aren't flying planes. Right. So I, I did some research again because I'm prepared for 82. We're gonna make so how big is the piece of the iceberg that's below the surface? OK, so as of uh, according to the Air Force demographics from Air Force Personnel Command uh, that was taken in June of 2022, there are currently three hundred and twenty nine thousand 500-ish active duty members in the Air Force. Okay, people that wear uniforms. That doesn't yes. include like civilians. It does not include civilians, doesn't include guard. reserve, doesn't include guard. Okay. But of that, according to the Air Force Times, again, this is an older number, but this was the larger number, so I figured I'd default to the large number. According to the Air Force Times in June of 2021, a year prior, there were 19,100 active duty pilots. Okay. So, so 5.8% of the Air Force actually flies a plane. Five-ish percent of this iceberg is above the water. Oh, we'll say 6% to be generous. Okay? okay, 6%. All right, so I did some more digging. And now, in the Air Force, according to the force structure, there are 198 general officers that are allowed that can be in the service at any given time. There's uh, slots for 198 right. There's generals. congressional limitations on the number of people that can wear stars. Right. Now... This is the best quote that I could find, and it's from a study that's rather old. It's from 2001, but I have no I have no thoughts in my head that this would get any worse over time. So in 2001, 67% of four-star generals, four-star generals, which is not the whole 200, were pilots or were pilots when they started the Air Force. And pilots lead 63% of all the major commands in the Air Force. Ooh, this is really good. So if... There's 6% of the people in the Air Force are pilots, but almost 70% of the four stars in the Air Force are pilots. That is definitely an overrepresentation. And I will tell you, Ben, like growing up in both, like seeing both sides of the coin, I can tell you that there are objectively huge differences between the way that support officers grow up as leaders and the way that pilots grow up as leaders. Like, uh, yes, we talked about how long it takes to learn to be a pilot. You're going to be in training for multiple years. And so like the entire time that you're a lieutenant, the first four years you're in, you're just in training. And maybe you get to your weapon system by the end of it and you're a wingman, but you don't call any shots. You're just doing what somebody else tells you to do. Right. But because of that, they incur like a six year active duty service commitment. So the Air Force can get their pound of flesh out of you. I'm not I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is that. Like, these guys don't see leadership until they're, like, a yes. captain or a major. Like, Agreed. really, Sorry, didn't mean to change the subject. When you're a pilot, like, you really don't get put in charge of other pilots until you're a senior captain or a major. That's the time when you start seeing leadership and start feeling responsibility and, like, tasks and things, like, come to your plate. Like, I need to take care of stuff. That's not just me. You're, you're doing administrative type things. Right. Now, I know that you'll agree with me on this, but the day that I walked into my the building when I was a second lieutenant, like bright, shiny, and ready to go six months after I graduated, I was put in charge of eight dudes all older than me and said, this is your mission. Make sure it happens or it's your ass on the line. Right. 
So they put you in charge of, of a, as a leader at the very, as soon as you started your career. Right. And so by the time I was a senior captain, like that was right the same time that pilots are just about to start doing their leadership stuff. I was already seasoned. I had already been in charge of hundreds of people. I was already in charge of multi-million dollar projects. I was already in charge of my own budget and task list and, and, and personnel. And so like the skill set is vastly different. Okay, I'm going to be devil's advocate here for a minute because I okay. think our audience is smart and I think that they're they're getting what you're laying down. If you're saying that 70% of the generals are pilots, but only 5% of the force is pilots, do you think that it should be 5% of the the four stars is pilots? I don't think that's no, no, no. I'm not I'm not advocating for there should be fewer pilots in leadership positions. What I'm advocating is that we need to rethink how we train senior leadership. Um, this was the idea I had when I was in because like you're a comm officer, right? And you know that there's only a handful of, of officer slots that are uh, allocated yes. to of, comm. of those 198 generals that are allowed in the U S air force for, for cyberspace operations officer. I'm sure, you know, it's just 20 or less. Uh, oh yeah. It, I, I would be surprised if it was 20. Yeah. So like you're limited. You already know that there's a cap on your whole career field. It doesn't matter how capable you are as a leader because the fact that you grew up as a cyberspace officer limits your command opportunities. What if we are are boxing out some of the greatest leaders that the Air Force has ever known just because they, they get motion sickness or they were too tall to sit in a plane when they were 21 years old and joined the force? You're and- making me wonder if other, not even military, but if other industries have this problem. Like, I'm, if- I'm sure they do. I'm sure that every industry is going to be biased towards uh, the high visibility jobs or, or the um, like even like uh, if you are if you came from if you're a senior leader and you came from a certain career field, you have knowledge of, of the difficulties and the struggles that you had in that career field. But you don't of ones that were parallel to you. So if you were a cyberspace officer and you got to an upper echelon level leadership position and you had the opportunity to hire one of three guys, one of which was a comm officer and the other two did other things, you have a very clear idea of what that comm officer has achieved, whereas you don't really understand the stuff that the other two did. And that's right. going to so even if it's not deliberate bias, it's just inherent. Right. My my pie in the sky, if I was king for a day, kind of solution for that was there needs to be a separate, completely like alternate track that's just leadership like people need to be groomed as senior majors or junior lieutenant colonels like this guy has command potential and they go on a different thing like they're no longer part of the flying community they're no longer part of the support community they're now part of the command community and they bounce between different assignments and different things and get exposure to all the different aspects that the service has to offer so they have a more broad understanding of the the struggles and things I would wonder if any organization, whatever it is, isn't doesn't have a little bit of this bias towards like, what is it the ultimate thing that this industry produces? And are we biased towards having people that make or have made that thing at the highest echelons of leadership? Well, and this is why I said it's a uniquely Air Force problem, because the Air Force is is so specialized. Being a pilot is such a specialized skill set that they're almost completely isolated from the rest of the operations for the entire time that they're like a junior officer. And they just live in this stovepipe and they don't understand anything what's going on to support like the rest of the career field. It's just fly your plane. I know you're not going to know this off the top of your head, but I wonder like, for instance, how many NFL uh, coaches used to be quarterbacks as opposed to other positions? 
Okay. That's an interesting question. It's the same kind of thing. Like, yeah, you could have a lineman be the head coach, but you want a quarterback because they're the ones that see the whole offense and are kind of running the main part of the show. I think you should broaden that a little bit. Less less about how many head coaches were quarterbacks and how many head coaches were like offensive coordinators before they got promoted to head coach. Like there's there's a track through coaching uh, professional sports the same way there's a track through any career field. Yeah. And so, yeah, you've probably, there are, all I'm saying, Ben, is that there are, <laughs> there are careers and there are places and there are like, like the professional sports, like the Air Force, where it could become too hyper-focused to the detriment of the force, potentially. Yes. Great point. Okay. So, so um, Clayton Christensen, uh, who went on to become the head of the Harvard Business School, wrote a book called The Innovator's Dilemma. And in it, he talked about how businesses sometimes will fail to be able to make a critical innovation at a turning point in a technology because of these kinds of things. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at here, that if if our organization is run by fighter pilots mostly, what if technology changes in such a way that that is no longer the primal premier capability of an Air Force? And that is happening right now. Oh, right. We have a bunch of fighter jocks at the upper echelons of leadership when intelligence and surveillance is becoming like the penultimate thing that we do. Yes, the ultimate thing. Or uh, we're developing unmanned capabilities that trump any of those capabilities to the point of where they might not even be feasible in the very near future. I'll tell you what, Ben. They, I, I flew unmanned aircraft and they ran that squadron like a traditional flying squadron yeah and it it's a blind spot it did not work there were so many like square pegs and round holes that made our life more difficult or unnecessarily complicated it didn't make any sense yeah i i'm gonna cap all this whole thing off with with one anecdote if you don't mind yep and so i was a senior captain in this flying squadron and we were flying on night shift and it was probably three in the morning okay and it's me and a couple other guys. We were weathered down, and so we're not flying right at the moment. We're hanging out in the office, knocking out some of the extra work that we have. And it's me, the senior captain, and like three lieutenants, the other pilot guys. And the squadron commander pokes his head in doing the squadron commander thing, like being the good guy. He's like, hey, guys, we got some leftover pizza. You guys want something to eat? And I was like, actually, so we're getting off shift here in a couple hours, and we're going to go have some group PT. So I'm going to go ahead and abstain. I don't want a full stomach when I go you know, running on the track with the rest of the guys. And then the other three are like, oh, yeah, pizza. Let's hand it over. And, like, they all get a couple slices of pizza. And I started chuckling. And apparently the commander noticed myself, noticed me chuckling to myself and asked me, what, what's so funny? Well, sir, I just love the disparity between the ex-support guy and all the pilots. The ex-support guy is thinking about the long-term ramifications of his decisions. And the pilots are just like, oh, pizza. <laughs> uh, you had a little meta moment. It's a good one. He did not like me at all, and it was uh, for and it was for comments like that. You should, yeah, maybe you shouldn't have answered his question. You're like, <laughs> oh, sir, I was just thinking about a dad joke I heard this morning. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That's that would have been. Yeah, go ahead and time travel back and tell you know twenty five year old Josh. Hey, stop being such an a hole. <laughs> so I heard. Uh, um, I heard a formal way of stating a principle I'd already believed for a long time. So on this podcast in the past, we've talked about Occam's razor, which is the simplest explanation is usually the most correct. And this is another play on that, a different version of it that I think goes along with what we're talking about with the Air Force. And that is uh, some guy named Hanlon came up with this adage that 
Never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by stupidity. Yes, I have also heard this. I always heard this as assume ignorance before malice. Assume somebody is dumb before they're before you assume that they're mean. Yes, and, and that's what I'm saying here uh, about this. And and this is also how I treat conspiracy theories. If someone wants to explain some vast government conspiracy theory, I'd be like, how about we just try to explain this with idiocy instead of you know <laughs> intelligence and and corroboration. So I understand how your conspiracy theory could work with 6,000 people all working in conjunction and being perfectly secretive about this thing. Or it could be five guys being really stupid. (laughs) Hanlon's razor at work. All right, Josh. So you found out about a new trend in the employing arena that you wanted to talk about. Yes. And it like it, it lined up. It crossed so many boxes in my mind that I couldn't help but get like excited about it and do research and things. So there I was, Ben, in the drive-thru at Wendy's. And Wendy's, uh-huh. oh, God bless them. They're one of the last fast food restaurants in my town that don't make you pull forward, regardless of how much different fried <laughs> food you order. Does that make you more likely to go there? Honestly, yeah, a little bit. Okay. Oh, New yeah. listeners to the program, Josh has a thing about uh, getting asked to pull forward in drive-thrus. He, 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 and he doesn't do it. But I, yeah, that we'll have to go a deeper dive on that because that's being updated. The more I'm in my car with my family and the more that my wife will not let me not pull forward and they're getting better. Like we're not going that direction. What I'm talking okay. about, I'm in the, the drive through at Wendy's. They didn't make me pull around. So I had plenty of time to sit and just ponder like the, the fabric of the universe. Right. And they had the stickers on the window at the drive through And, you know, they always have the plethora of stickers. And I like reading them to see, you know, what does this organization think is important enough to advertise to me, the consumer? And if you're at a place that the most prominent sticker you see is that the safe is time-locked and will not open after 9 p.m., that says something about the <laughs> restaurant that you're going to. It kind of does. You probably don't want to be in the dining room in the evening. <laughs> but this, this restaurant had a sticker I'd never seen before. Like, they all have hiring now all positions. They all uh-huh. have that all the time. But this sticker was unique in that it also said, collect your paycheck after every shift. And then it had a little website at the bottom of it. And I'm like, what is this now? And I could what? not. Yeah. And so wait, how does that, how would that even work? And so like, I made a mental note and then I went home with the, with the food. But then I did my research later. Because as an accountant in an accounting firm that also does payroll, I'm very interested in this topic. And so apparently this is not the only uh, service that offers this now. So this is becoming a thing in this industry. Okay, hang on. Before you go into this, let's talk about the paradigm that's being shifted here. Well, I like, w- I'm not even at, we're not, we haven't gotten to the point where I explain what the paradigm is. Okay, well, I want to go back to ancient history because when you read about like, <laughs> when you read about like day laborers in the time of Christ, they got paid the same day that they did the work. Okay. Like that was the paradigm. And at some point, between then and now, when we instituted banking, there became this delay. And maybe at first there was a bit of backlash where you were basically giving free labor to your employer for a period of time, after which then you finally got caught up. Uh, we just stopped questioning it. I think, and well, it became the norm that whether it was two weeks or four weeks that you just did work and waited for the pay to come for the work you'd already done. It was okay. like an interest-free loan of labor from you to your employer. Well, now, hang on a second, Mr like libertarian over there so, like calm yourself down that's not Whoa. blame the banking industry on this that's uh, well no i take it hang on a second no take a hypothetical journey with me okay okay you are a business owner in the 1700s banking is a new thing like it's nice to have your money somewhere else and now you hire a guy and he wants to get paid at the end of every shift 
cool, no problem. You have already negotiated a wage with him, what he is going to earn, and it's easy to shell out money for him at the end of the day. How? Well, you just, well, if you have You give him a writ with a wax seal on it that he goes to the bank and picks up part of his money. You realize banking was like not like a day-to-day. Like when the first bank appeared, it wasn't like, hey, we do payday loans. Like the first bank was for like huge amounts of money between countries. It wasn't for day-to-day transactions. So talk about the logistics of it. Like you said, in the 1700s, the guy doesn't want to keep all his money with him. Uh, So he puts it in a bank. Banking was created because of merchants in the Mediterranean. There was multiple different types of currencies that were across the entire trading sphere of this area. And in order, like it was a real pain in the butt to haul hundreds of pounds of metal on a boat okay, from one place to another and then have it money changed. Instead, they took slips of paper from a bank institution. And but the if bank you're had an employer that bank. deals in labor where you have to hire out labor, you would have enough on hand to pay your day laborers you keep, per day. You're, you're like a... You keep sidetracking me from the, 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 the point <laughs> I'm trying to make We're on a here. tangent right now. I want to be on this tangent. I know, but I'm trying to explain to you. Like, it is easy. Like, if you have the coinage and you have the income, the revenue, whatever, it's easy to pay your labor every day at the end of the day. Now, multiply that by 600 people. Now you have a workforce, an, an industrialized nation. You, you run a textile mill and you have a shift with 300 people. You're going to sit there, like how long, just the logistically, how long would it take to pay 300 people in cash at the end of that day? It's a problem. Yes, but it is a problem. even if you wait two weeks, it's still the same problem. Not with direct deposit, not with like, and there's also taxes that have to be calculated. Is this and a luxury? Out. Is this a sign of like a, a first world society? Anyway, so in in antiquity, that's the way we did it. Somewhere in the middle, it got messed up to where we as the worker have normalized giving our employer an interest-free loan of labor for up to two, sometimes four weeks. And now in the year 2022, we're going back to getting paid for your labor at the time that you give it. You are so oversimplifying this whole thing. But you know what? I'm going to allow it because I just want to move on. Yes. Okay. So the the thing that I researched, the app, and this is not just this service, there's multiple services. Apparently, it is a an integrated time clock and payroll service for the employer. So if you run a business, you hire the service, and it acts as both the time clock for your employees to clock in and clock out, and then manage their off time, manage their vacation, manage their sick time, whatever. And then also it automatically runs all of your payroll at the end of whatever your payroll you decide it's going to be, if it's weekly or biweekly or whatever. And the employees, if they download the app and it gets linked to it or whatever, um, as long as somebody in management, either the shift manager or the owner or whoever, approves the time clock at the end of the day, the employee can claim up to 50% of that shift's wages right then and there. Hmm. So it gets added to their – and this is this is where the app starts getting tricky because they're also a bank. It's like, oh, we'll just put it in your account with us. Now, you can transfer it to your another bank for free, but we give you a free debit card just to make it super easy to leave your money with us. So then they can loan it out to other banks and make their interest loans and all that stuff. So like you said, if you're sitting in a drive-thru and there's a sticker up for this service – that must mean that they intend to attract – this is a way to distinguish themselves as an employer from other employers. The websites for this service talked about um, all the benefits you get from it as an employer. It talked about better retention rates. It talked about less sure. absenteeism. But, okay, the website is trying to sell it to the employers, but the right. sticker is trying to sell it to the employees. Well, and I could get that. Like if you're working a minimum wage job or if you're if you're living close to the bone, if you don't have a lot of slack in your day-to-day budget – 
then right. you're going to want to get your money as quickly as possible. That's a desirable feature to you. The sooner yes. you get your paycheck, the better. If you've never been in a position where you got your paycheck and then you paid like all of the must pays and you only had $200 for groceries between now and the next two weeks, never mind actually you know going out and doing anything, that's an unpleasant feeling. Yeah. Okay. So what what do you think? What's the verdict? So, and that's the thing, as I started thinking about it, because I, I have to, like, if this is going to be something that is being implemented for small businesses as a small business accountant, I need to be aware of it. Yeah. And so what are the ramifications for both the business and the employees? Well, for the businesses, nothing, it's like business as usual, because well, this is all automated can, for them. Can I give this a hack? Sure, go ahead. Okay, so I bet, I would bet, I don't know for sure, I don't know any data or statistics about this, but I would bet there are cycles of, of employees quitting immediately after a payday okay i like if you were to take a thousand quits i bet that they would line up more with like the day after a payday than something else Hmm. and that's just because that's when they're gonna get the maximum paycheck that they would otherwise earn right okay so so if you flatten that out so that they get paid every day I, I don't I think it would normalize your kind of hiring cycles, although it also kind of increases the likelihood of you just losing someone with very little notice. Yeah. And, and like the website mentioned absenteeism, and I could see that if you're collecting a majority of your paycheck after you work every time, then that more closely allows you to associate the work with the pay instead of getting your pay after two weeks of living up with this job that you hate. It's a lot easier to call in sick when you hate the job and you're not and the money is still two weeks out. But if you get your paycheck every time that you go work, it's a lot easier to be like, man, I really should just go into work and get the money. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'd be interested uh, how that long term, how that affects those kinds of things. So a couple of things here. I started talking to this with my wife and she rightfully corrected me because I immediately started saying, well, if you're working one of these jobs and you're living this close to the bone, this is going to make you more dependent on your employer. Because my assumption was that if you want to collect half of your paycheck immediately, that means you're turning around and spending it. But that might not necessarily be true. People could just be putting it away. And just because the the uh, the capability is there doesn't mean they're taking advantage of it. And so she rightfully called me out. Like, you don't know what these people are doing with the advance on the money or getting the money faster. It could be exactly the same as if they got it every two weeks. I feel like you kind of reveal your bias by calling it in advance. Well, but that <laughs> so as an accountant, that's how you would account for this. Like if your payroll is run every two weeks. So that just means our accounting practices are antiquated. Like getting paid for labor you've already completed is by definition not in advance. No, that's uh, okay. You're, you're, you're missing. <sighs> I, how deep do you want me to go down the double entry accounting <laughs> rabbit hole, Ben? Because until you run payroll, payroll, like payroll due is a liability on your books, not an expense, which means it's technically in advance because you haven't run the payroll yet. Listen here, Mr. Corpse, until we process your death certificate, you are still alive. Yeah, in all for all legal intents and purposes, that's absolutely correct. Like, why? Why you got to call me out on this? I'm I'm a rules guy. <laughs> all right. So here's here's the other thing that I wanted to talk about. Okay, yep. is that this is just one step closer to this nightmare dystopia that I keep like uh, uh, doomed saying on this podcast, where like 30 years from now we're never going to own anything. And now, like, if this becomes the norm, imagine if this became the norm across all industries, is that you work and then, like, you got paid at the end of the shift. Or forget that. What if you are sitting at your job, looking at your bank account, and you're watching it tick up by 15 cents, like, every, you know, 30 seconds or something, or whatever I love the accrual it. is? Let's take it all the way out to the absolute level of ridiculous where you're being paid in real time. 
there is an episode of Black Mirror in the first season called Six Million Credits or something like that. Uh-huh. And, and this guy has a job where he gets up and he gets on a bike. And, like, there's an implication that this stationary bike is, like, a power generator. And, like, that's what he's generating. And as he's on the bike, he's watching TV. And in the lower right-hand corner is his bank balance. And it just ticks up as he's sitting there pedaling. Okay, so someone's already imagined this. Oh, and then the other side of that coin is that that bank balance also follows him around. Like, he's in his bathroom, and he's getting toothpaste out of a dispenser. And as he's dispensing toothpaste, the credit mark is going down. Like, if he wants a lot of toothpaste, it's going to cost so, him more so than just a little So that's the bit. dystopian version. You've talked frequently on this podcast about the utopian version, no. which is in the future we have enough resources that we stop tracking all of that. Well, I'm also ta- – but I'm fear of the dystopian where in the future we don't own anything, where, like, travel, like, your car is a service. Your clothes you just get from Amazon on a rental basis and return after the lease is over. We're never going to own our house again. Like the banks are already trying to buy them back with reverse mortgages. Like in the future, we don't own anything and we get paid every minute that we're at work. And so it's so just, yeah. You, this- you frequently talk about how the only thing that we really have is time. And I think someone made that movie too, where there's like, you, you, you have time and your everything you do is just it's negotiating currency. in increments of currency of time. Yes, that's, um, it's Justin Timberlake movie. I forget what it's called. It's probably Just in Time or something. <laughs> it's got Olivia Wilde. It's a good movie. Okay. Yeah, I didn't watch it. Um, all right. So what do we do? If, are we starting company today? Is this something we want to participate in? Is it just complicated because the accounting rules are based on the old assumptions? I think this is absolutely good for a job with very high employee turnover and replace very replaceable labor. Like if you just need a warm body to sit in a spot and do a thing that's that's quick to train and easy to master, then this seems like a good way, assuming all their statistics are correct, assuming it actually reduces absenteeism, assuming it actually reduce or increases retention, then this is only a good thing. Like if the employees if this is a service that employees are taking advantage of, then clearly it's something that people want. And so being able to offer that is just a good thing that you can do as an employer. At the same time, if I'm working in like a professional job where I need somebody that's highly educated, highly skilled, highly trained, I don't think this is something people would take advantage of. But that, again, that could just be my bias. Like mm. I, I don't see myself taking half of my paycheck out every day. But at the same token, like maybe some family emergency comes up and I need an advance. Like payroll advances have been a thing forever. So who knows? Yeah. And at high interest. So this could actually be a big boon to the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum. Okay. I said pay, payroll advance. I didn't say payday loans. Those are different. Okay. <laughs> you had put a placeholder in here for some batted adulting, and your prompt question is great. I had a discussion about this this week, so I want to hear what, you, what your thoughts were. <laughs> okay. So this is the question that I had, and this experienced this in my life, is then tell me. Does stuff like expire? Like for real? Does does stuff really expire? Does stuff really oh. go bad? Okay, so yes and no. <laughs> Let's talk about all of them. Because like milk milk expires, Josh. Well, I got yes, Ben. I'm okay. aware that like But like aspirin? Mm. Well that okay, yes, you're 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 exactly on the right track because I say this, I have this little like back and forth with my wife all the time. Where Nicole, in general, I'm going to speak wrong for her and she's going to get mad at me. I'll have to retract this next episode, but it's fine. Right now I'm taking a stand. In general, <laughs> Nicole is a firm believer in the expiration dates on stuff. Like, like if it, trust what it says for every expiration date on everything. 
what if it was, you know the internet joke, what if it was on a jar of salt? Well, yeah, and that's the joke. It's like, oh man, this salt was in the earth for 14 250 million years. 250 million years, yeah. <laughs> but it expired in November. Dang. Um, that's the thing. Like spices, like I, I, I am of the opinion, uh, she is of the opinion that stuff expires and we should obey the expiration dates that are printed on the packaging. No matter am, what. Uh, no matter what. I am of the opinion that the FDA requires an expiration date even for stuff that can't logistically expire. And that we should take, <laughs> with a grain of salt, all of these expiration dates for the different things. <laughs> yeah, good one. So the, the the thing that this came up for in my, in my life this week is I uh, made a batch of cinnamon rolls from scratch today. And I got some yeast out of the cupboard that I hadn't used in a while. And I looked at it and it had an expiration date on it. Now with yeast, what's being measured isn't, I think, isn't that it's going to become <laughs> dangerous. It's that it's going to become ineffective. Okay. You know, that, that there's almost like a half-life of the tiny organisms that are in suspended animation in this jar awaiting some kind of food so that they can turn it into gas that will make bubbles in my bread. Oh, well, we have an absolutely easy way of measuring this. How many bubbles were in your bread when you made it? Yeah, it, not enough. So <laughs> o- over time, this is a function that just goes down and down and down and down. So they're basically measuring with that expiration date, I think, how much is the acceptable amount of reduction before you don't consider this a valid product anymore, which is way different than like a product that could potentially become toxic or dangerous so over time. The product that I used that was expired this week was uh-huh. honey mustard. Okay. We, okay. we had a meal that uh, that was uh, – it's like Rus- – it's called Birox. It's Russian in origin. It got transferred to Kansas and my wife had them as she was growing up. Anyway, it's basically meat, cabbage, and onions that were baked together and then you put like like actual bread around it and bake them that way. So they look like little hunks of rolls but they've got a delicious meat surprise on the inside. <laughs> and you eat them with mustard and we had honey mustard in the cabinet and I, I looked at it and it expired uh, last year, November of 2021. Uh-huh. And I was, do, do you have any idea how how long that was from when you purchased it? Oh no, no clue, no clue okay. whatsoever. Darn. But and so I'm looking at it, and I made I did the mental calculus. I'm like, what is in this jar? This jar has vinegar. This jar has like powdered mustard, and like that's it, right? Maybe some and, salt and, and some other stuff. And honey, which and is honey. which is known for its it's known by bees in all of <laughs> evolutionary history for its chemical structure that makes it virtually immune to expiration okay so there you go so you, it sounds like you're on the same side as me it's like there is nothing in this honey mustard that could possibly ever go bad right so i and it was sealed like i had to open the cap and like pull off the the oxygen seal i was made of foil at the top of it like there's there's no way anything has gone bad in this did it mustard. smell or taste unusual in any way i was the only one that had it but i was had a lot of it standing there fine. trying to make you get rid of it no she argued with me at the time I'm like it is fine i'm gonna have it and then the next day she made me throw it away okay all right so you and i have talked about this before in my wife's ethic for the ways that she determines that things are unclean it sounds like your wife has a similar unclean ethic and that is i abide the printed expiration date of everything. And, you know, when you have a rule like that in your life that you live by, it just makes it simpler. Like, I don't have to make a chemical evaluation of the components of this thing. (laughs) I just live my life by the expiration date. That's true. I mean, I'm a lot laxer on that because, I don't know, maybe I have a – I feel like I have a hearty constitution. And I, I rarely get sick. So <laughs> yeah. I, I've drank My dad's the kind of guy that cuts the mold off the cheese and keeps on trucking. I mean, that's how they age cheese sometimes. But 
Like, I've drank milk a few days after the expiration. Whatever, man. Like, sometimes you just got to do what you got to do to get through the day. But you look me in the eye and tell me this dried oregano is expired. That's not a thing. Yeah. uh, Yeah. It's... Yeah, it's definitely not toxic. It's It perhaps is less effective, I guess. What, the oregano? It's less yeah. oregano-y? Yeah, it's lost a little bit of his oregano-ness. <laughs> they're, they're a little less leafy as time goes on? Like, I don't get how that works. Yeah, well, I mean, I can definitely taste the difference between fresh ground pepper and, you know, like, dehydrated flaked pepper. Well, now, hang on a second. What what constitutes, like, old pepper that's from the mill? Like, is it is it preserved better when it's in the whole kernels as opposed to being pre-ground? I'm sure there's someone that knows this, but I can definitely taste a difference. You know, Guaranteed. There, there's got to be a field. Like, there's a scientist who has spent his entire adult life specializing in the oxidization of the molecules of ground pepper. And I want to talk to that guy. I want him to be the first guest on our podcast, and I want to grill him for 45 minutes about the oxidization of pepper. So Jerry Seinfeld does a great routine about this in milk. He's like, how do they know what the date is? Like, is the farmer milking the cow and the mil- and the cow looks back and goes, October 14th. He's like, <laughs> how do they know? And some, I don't know about you, but I've had milk that's before the date and spoiled. Uh, yeah, there's a, lot milk, of, there's a lot of variables there. And milk that's after the date and not. You're right, there's a lot of variables. Uh, after the date and not. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I tend to live in such a way that I'm making an actual determination on the thing itself rather than just trusting the date. I'll tell you right now, Ben, like we live in Arizona. And so if you leave the milk like on the counter or in the trunk of your car for more than 15 minutes, I don't care if it's not going to expire for two weeks. It's, it's expired now. Yes. However, if it's something that relies on the fact of like, um, moisture getting into something in order for it to expire then things in arizona are going to be preserved longer like my bread lasted a lot longer in las vegas than it does here in in louisiana (laughs) that's true uh we don't get a whole lot of moldy bread like we have to really neglect our bread to get mold on it yeah so i i had one like this happen uh couple weeks ago when my daughter left for the airport so there was this old episode of seinfeld where george costanza revealed that he had an insecurity surrounding revealing his atm pin to anyone ever under any circumstances and they're like that would never happen you would actually need to give your atm pin to someone so then they came up with this outlandish improbable story that they played out in the episode where george actually had to give his atm person to someone do you remember this did you see this one no i don't think i did Okay, I, I can't remember the exact logistics of it, but I think he'd been in the booth and he'd left and then he'd forgotten his card and the guy behind him walked up to the booth and it sucked the guy's necktie into the card slot. <laughs> and it wouldn't eject it until he punched in. And the then the building caught fire. <laughs> so this man's life was on the line. This man's life was at stake unless George... <laughs> and, and then George was locked out, so he couldn't just go up to it and type the, it in. They, they set up the exact amount of circumstances that like he had to shout out in front of a bunch of strangers what his ATM pin was. <laughs> and of course, since they're toxic, horrible people, he's sitting there like really considering not doing it. Yeah, because he's the average New York person. Yes. <laughs> so I, I didn't... You know, everybody watches that and they laugh because they have that little insecurity about telling other people your ATM pin or whatever. Like, yeah, I would be insecure if I had to do that. Um, And I think, oh, but I don't really have any insecurities and nothing like that. Something like that happened in my life. (laughs) So my 
sister-in-law had breast cancer and she's recovering, but she needed some treatments. And it turned out that she needed someone to come stay at her house for a couple of weeks. And so she called and said, hey, can your 19-year-old unemployed daughter come stay at my house uh, in three days? And we're like, "Uh, we asked her and she was ready to go. And they bought her a ticket and she had to go. So it required my wife driving from Shreveport to Dallas, which is three hours away. And it was on a Saturday. So I was laying in my bed peacefully on a Saturday. You didn't drive her? No, no, I, it wasn't my turn. It wasn't your turn to drive I, three hours to street. If you remember, if you remember, if you remember, about six months ago, my wife's parents got stranded because of COVID right. at my house, and I and someone needed to drive them to Dallas, and I took her parents to Dallas. You have to drive to Dallas so much. You have a turn counter, like you figure out whose turn it is to it's drive to Dallas. It's just a crappy drive. It's a three-hour drive. <laughs> What's three hours from Phoenix? Is Las Vegas? No, what is, is Los Angeles? Three hours from Phoenix? Uh, actually, yeah, that's called. That's that's just go ahead and say that. It's probably okay. like closer to four. Yeah, it that's just a, that's a, it just ruins your whole day. You know, like if if, yeah. if I was planning on having a relaxing Saturday and you throw in a drive to Dallas, the day's done. Toast. That's gonna be the whole day, and it's like a not very exciting drive. It's I mean, it's what is that East Texas? So there's nothing. Yeah, East Texas, nothing. So so it was her turn. And I was laying in bed thinking I was going to get to enjoy my day. I uh, actually I had a talk in church the next day, so I needed to spend the day writing my sermon. And I, I was laying in bed, minding my own business, and they wake me up. And I'm like, what's going on? They're like, we need your help right now. I'm like, what? They're like, well, we're, we got to leave for the airport. Or we're going to be late, but we need to know if Kaya's suitcase is too heavy to take to the airport. But if we put it on the scale, it covers up the numbers. So we need someone to stand on the scale and hold it, but it's too heavy. So we need you to do it. This is the weirdest setup so far. Okay, they, you needed somebody that was strong enough to hold the suitcase and stand on a scale. And then you could weigh just the person and get the difference, and that would be what the bag weighed. Yes, but now I have a situation with no notice and no escape where my wife and daughter have to stare at the numbers on the scale that I'm standing on. And I've gained a little bit of weight le- recently. I haven't looked at a scale myself in probably six months, and I was a little bit self-conscious about it, and I didn't know what the number was going to be. Ben, wow, you're really throwing me for a loop because I didn't realize I was co-hosting a podcast with a 27-year-old woman. <laughs> I'm feeling like George Costanza here, Josh, and I'm like considering my options. I'm, you know, I'm waking up out of a dead sleep. I throw on some sweatpants and I kind of stumble out in the living room, and they got this 50-pound suitcase in the scale, and it's like this. I, I got to stand on it and let them read the numbers. There are so many things happening here. So first of all, it's three days. How how on earth? Is your 19-year-old daughter... Oh, there, I answered the question. How is she packing more than 50 pounds worth of stuff for three days? She's still there. Oh, how long has it been? Uh, Three weeks. Oh, three weeks. Why did I think three days? She's not coming back till Christmas. Maybe... Maybe she'll put down roots and not come back at all and we'll bring out more of her stuff. Like, this was a big deal. She was leaving. Oh. And listeners, you didn't realize, but uh, you probably Ben will probably edit it out. But he knocked on wood there, hoping that uh, that uh, Kaya does stay out of the house. I'm really fond of her, Josh, and it was kind of sudden. So there was also that element of it. Like, I, I thought she was going to be here, and then bam, she was gone. And I didn't really even have a chance to say goodbye or like spend oh, a minute with her. That's like every parent has ever said the, when their kids go off to college. That's so cute. Yeah. Okay. okay. Now, now the other part of this is who cares. Like, you're a grown man. Who cares what you weigh? <laughs> Who cares if you yell out your ATM pin in front of a bunch of strangers? You could just change it's not, it. No, okay, your ATM pin is private information people could use to ultimately destroy you financially. Your weight is completely inconsequential. That's just how much gravity hates you. That's all that is. All right. Apparently. 
Men, I need some help out here, listeners. If you're a man and you wouldn't want to just step on a scale and have even close people to you look at the scale and read the numbers, let me know if I'm alone. If I'm alone, I'm willing to accept that this is my. I'm channeling my inner 27 year old woman. How much do you weigh, Ben? I'm not telling you. I'll tell you on the podcast <laughs> right now, and I, I guarantee it's like way more. I would say it's at least 30 percent more than you. Okay, 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 okay. I was relieved. Because I didn't know what it was going to be. I was relieved that it wasn't as high as I thought. I think it was 209. Okay. I weigh 265 pounds. Yeah. And I'll tell you right now, this is weight and age are the same in my mind, okay? You're also four inches taller than me. Well, Ben, look at me. Look at me. Look at me. Neither one of those numbers matter at all. Age is a lap counter around the sun. How do you feel? That's that's the real measure of like how old you are. I feel like I need new pants. Weight... (laughs) <laughs> is is just a measure of how much gravity hates you. Like if you if you are happy with the way that you look and feel, then who cares what you weigh? All right, so let's talk about not being happy about how you look and feel because I saw something else this week that I'd never seen before, Josh. I sent you a link to it. Did you look at any of this media surrounding leg lengthening surgery? Oh dear, oh dear. I I heard about it, but I did not click into it because I knew that was going to involve X-rays that were going to make me woozy. Okay, yeah, yeah, sorry. I'm going to describe it a little bit. That's so fine. apparently this is falling mostly, uh, there There are medical reasons where you could get this, you know, like if you have an orthopedic defect and one of your legs is shorter than the other, this can just correct the defect and line up your legs and make it so you can walk and not have horrible, debilitating, lifelong consequences. However, as with any surgery like that, there's also a version of it that basically brings out the rich people that have some vain reason for wanting to take advantage of it. And in this case, what they do is they take your femurs, they crack them in half, install a titanium screw in them, and then it has a remote battery-powered motor that every day lengthens your bones by one millimeter. So basically your legs are in a constant state of healing from broken bone for six months until you've added, you know, three inches to your height. I love that there is a dollar amount at which ethics flies out the window and a medical professional will do anything to you. So enlighten me for a minute what you think is unethical about basically lengthening your bones. Um, so the Hippocratic Oath is literally first, first do, do no, no harm. harm. Like, okay, so we're going to break your legs, like, but it's going to fix you. Like, like you were talking about earlier, if you have a debilitating orthopedic problem, it's like there is a radical surgery. It's going to hurt a lot. You're going to be in constant pain. And you're going to need constant rehabilitation. But it could bring you back to a sense of like a normal life. Oh, or you're just rich and want to be an inch taller? Well, I mean, it's going to be ludicrously, oh, what's this? A check for $150,000? Oh, that's fine. Go ahead and sign this waiver. We'll knock it out. Okay. I'll break both okay. your legs All right. tomorrow. All right. You convinced me. Unethical. So, and then, and then if once you've lengthened your femurs, you, you get a bit, a bunch, you get a bit out of proportion. You look kind of funny. Well, yeah, uh, because it's just your femurs. Like, you're not stretching out every other bone in your body. It's not like you're taking a person and, like, just stretching their whole their whole thing. You're taking one tiny sliver of it and making it taller. So then after you've healed up from that, they can break your tibia and your fibula and install a screw in those and give you another three inches. So you can be six inches taller, all legs. What does this do to your tendons? What does this do to I your, don't like, know. muscle fibers? I don't know. That's, that's why it's got to be excruciating, just like constant torture. Oh, until like all of the six months of physical therapy are done with, right? Of course, we haven't had long enough to see like what this does to you long term. Like the... if it destroys your spinal column or like you get early onset arthritis or I don't know. All right. So like first, like this specific procedure, 
that's that's a hard pass for me. No thanks. I'm tall enough. <laughs> we're, we're we're good here. But this is, and you rightfully identified like one of the first steps towards serious, like kind of body altering, body augmentation uh, technology. Yes. So we consume all kinds of media where we examine some kind of future where like we're cybernetic or androids or, you know, some kind of combination. Uh, what's I forget the, the sci-fy term for it when you're like a hu- yeah. human cyborg, 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 those kinds of things. This is it. It's here. We, ben, I, I congratulations. Have, we, we did it. Uh, ben, over on this shelf, I'm pointing at it where all my gaming stuff is. I have a role playing game that I played in like the late 90s and it's called Shadowrun. And the coolest part of that whole game that I loved to death was the cyberware, they called it. Like the augmentations that you could buy for your character in this role-playing game. And some of them just sound so amazing that I want them to be real. And so any steps that we can take to get closer to that sounds great. Like, for example, we're talking about bones. And this this game has like, oh, for a price, you can have all your bones laced with Kevlar. Just like a Kevlar mesh on the outside of all of your bones to make them... Like Wolverine and Adamantium. Yeah, make your bones nigh unbreakable. Or um, one of them was fly-by-wire, but for your nervous system. We're just going to rip out all of those crappy organic nerves and replace it with fiber optics, and it's going to be awesome. Like, just crap like that just sounds, I don't know, like maybe that's the dystopian nightmare future that I was talking about before. So they kind of normalize it in Back to the Future 2. You remember some of the next generation technologies, and there's a scene from the cafe where Griff comes in, and he's messing with marty's son i don't remember what his name was and if you remember he kind of like made this mechanical sound and got taller yeah just yeah just all the well i mean that happened in the other movies too and it was biff just standing up but like yeah same thing like all of the hydraulics like pressurized and he was ready to like pummel him into a into into a dust yeah so, yeah uh, i mean it could just be normal like the guy next to you like he's taller than he was before or whatever uh, yeah, but we're talking about like uh, 40 or 50 years from now, we're going to have NFL players. It's like, oh, well, you know, we should see some some good work here from from Billy Joe, Billy Joe because he just had his uh, hamstrings replaced with like the latest hydraulic pistons from uh, Lockheed Martin. So he's yeah. he's running like a 2.540. Yeah, there's there's lots of ethics. I, I'm going to put a placeholder here because we may end up editing this out, but the uh, Disc Golf Pro Tour just had a major championship last weekend, and the women's event was won by a transgender ma- uh, former male. Okay. And there's lots of controversy surrounding that. They've had to cut off all the comments and all the videos. And Well, that, that's just – we're not going to – are we really – Wanting us to talk about gender no, identity I don't. Th- in America I don't right think now. we are, but there is. I I feel like we're in this intermediate period where we haven't figured out what we want to do about it long term yet. Uh, I think that's. I think you've identified it correctly. I think we are transitioning from a society that was very binary in its thinking about what gender is, and then there are people that are identifying not as one or the other, but like identifying that um, gender could be more of a spectrum or a personal choice even. And so then all of these previous categorizations that we've separated the population arbitrarily by gender are no longer valid in that future place. Yeah. And we just said the same thing about taxes and paychecks. So, yeah, it's just, a, again, we're this could be the 1700s of gender identity. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> all right. I got a bad at husbanding for you, Josh. Okay. So this is one I think I'm going to attribute to like uh, birth order in our families of origin. 
So my wife and I, you and I are both oldest children. I think we have some of that oldest children camaraderie. Like you and I both understand the ethic of what it's like to be teased by a younger sibling. Okay. Whereas other people can't relate to that. Um, or what it means to kind of be a leader. Well, I am the oldest child of my family, and my wife's second to the last in her family. We both come from big families. And this causes a bit of friction every now and then, what I want to call the ethic of lead from the front versus bring up the rear. Okay. And as a kid, it has all these manifestations of you doing these things. But when you become an adult, it's like the, it's the second half of, of Final Fantasy. We're like... Before you were a black belt and now you're a ninja or whatever. I forget what they become when they grow up. <laughs> and you still have all the same characteristics, but it manifests manifests differently as an adult. So the, the bring up the rear ethic versus the lead from the front ethic. Let's say, for instance, you are parents of six children and you're trying to go load up the car. The person who has the lead from the front says, I'm going out to the car. And he goes and gets in the car. And then you wait for the children to come get in the car. The bring from the rear ethic is, I'm not going to leave this house until everyone is out before me. I don't know. I don't, I don't think you're using the right terms for that. Because okay. leading what from, would you call it? Well, just like, I'm leaving now. Bye, everyone. If you want to come, I hope you're ready. And just walking out. I don't. I wouldn't call that leading from the front. <laughs> I call that more like, uh, like uh, suck it up, losers. Or oh, Okay. <laughs> Perhaps I'm characterizing it badly. Do you not think there's a valid way as a parent to lead from the front? I mean, well, to lead from the front is to like set the example, is to like be the one, the, the paragon right. of, I'm the, re- of the... I'm ready. We're leaving on time. But kids don't care. You about get ready and leave on well, time. This is the problem. Is they don't rec- care if you don't give them a reason to care. Well, why do they care if they leave on time? They don't care. Here's how they care. And I'll tell you this. Obviously, I'm more committed to the lead from the front ethic than you. Not the, whoa, 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 gross oversimplification, and we're using the wrong words. But go ahead and continue your point. Okay. You only have to leave them home once or twice before they change their stance on not caring about being ready. <laughs> That's not, that is definitely not leading from the front, man. That is. Why? That is punishing. Like, that is setting an expectation no. and then punishing people for not meeting the expectation. No. It, 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 you can't lead from the front if there isn't a motivation of your followers to follow. So, okay, so anyway, you're, you're, I've done. You're, okay, okay. You're obviously on Alicia's <laughs> side on this one. That no. my point of view is invalid and that there's only one right way to do this. I no, get no, that. no, no, no. I don't say that. And don't paint me into that corner. Man, you are really, like, trying to make me so say things here, I'm not here. So here's the opposite of it is that she thinks that the only right way to do it is to be the last one in the house and to go out after everyone. And this manifests itself in a lot of different ways. Even like, say, for instance, starting dinner. Generally, I'm the one who cooks dinner. I put it on the table. I call everyone. I'll wait a minute, maybe two. When no one comes, I sit there and start to eat. She comes in and says, why didn't you go get everyone? Why didn't you make everyone come to the table? Because I spent all that time cooking and I'm hungry and I called them and I started. That's the lead from the front versus bring up the rear. Uh, 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 okay, so... I'm not trying to take sides on this, and I'm not trying to be the the counterexample in your false dichotomy or your straw man argument here. But I mean, lead from the front, I think, is the wrong verbiage, and bringing up the rear is the wrong verbiage. There's a, I feel like what Elise is doing is hurting. She's hurting all of these wild animals that don't know how to take care of themselves into a place that they like. She knows that this is better. Like, listen, you need to move to the next pasture. You all need to sit down and eat a wholesome dinner. 
because that's what you need to do. I don't care if you're not hungry. I don't care if you ate a three starbursts in the afternoon and you think you're going to be fine <laughs> until tomorrow. Like, I know better than you. So let's go, you sheep, and go uh, okay, do Okay, so thing. don't get hung up on what I'm calling it. Underneath well, it is on. a philosophy of how to train people, well, and it's a long game. Okay, okay, but it's words are important because words mean things, and because sure. the fact that you're calling it lead from the front, you're setting yourself as like in your mind, it, like your verbiage uh, uh, immediately betrays you because you see yourself as George Washington on the, standing up one one leg up as you're crossing the Delaware in <laughs> on Christmas Day. Like that's that's the kind of like ethic that you're that you're I'm that you're giving you, you feel a chance like. to come up with a better name for it then. Uh, it's it's the name is like you're kind of like you're doing the things that you are required to do. You are checking the boxes. This is what I'm supposed to do as a parent, but like you're stopping at the point where it's like it's my responsibility to like take these extra steps. You're just taking certain things off of the checklist that Alicia says are, are her responsibility as a parent. And you are saying, these are not my responsibility. These are the responsibility of the things that I am parenting. Okay, so there is a little bit of tension when we're both going to the place. Like, if her and I are both going to a place and I go out and get in the car and then she stays in the house and herds all the kids. And then she comes out to the car and exasperately says to me, oh, you just go sit in the car while I do all the work. Well, because she is drawing, uh, you both are disagreeing on where you're drawing the line of what the responsibility is. In her mind, the responsibility as a parent is down here. And the fact that you are ignoring those boxes means that in her mind, you are not doing the job as a parent that she thinks you should be. So in that respect, it just looks like I'm being lazy. And from that respect, yeah, it looks like you're just kind of being a jerk and not helping out. But from, if she's from not her here, perspective, I do it the same way. Well, I, I know because you're a man of principle. <laughs> I do it the same way. Here's the, I will leave your butt behind. So what, 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 take what? responsibility for your own stuff. Now here's okay. The, okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. <laughs> this is important because it's not just one dinner or one trip or one time to church or one activity that we're going to or one bedtime. It is all of them. And I'm not trying to make obedient children. I'm trying to make children that can be self-actualized. Well, hang on a second. Now you're just justifying your position. We're not talking about your position. Yes. We're talking about the perception. We're talking about that okay, the two so of you, there is a set of all parenting. There is a set of all things that you can do as a parent, and you and Alicia draw separate circles. And where your circles don't overlap is where the friction is coming from. Okay. And so that's that's, fair. that's where the communication is happening between the two of you. Now, you believe in a certain parenting ethic that puts more responsibility on your children. That's not necessarily a bad thing. At the same time, Alicia is trying to make sure that her children do all of the things that children are supposed to do, whether or not they actually are the ones to initiate. That's also not a bad thing. But Th those were very fair characterizations. Well done. Yeah. Well, and that's what I'm saying is like the friction is coming because you both have different perspectives. And so you need to figure out which points, which places in your life need to follow one ethic and which places in your life need to follow the other. Kind of. So there's an assumption there. Let's say that... I I died tomorrow and she had to pick up all the slack. Would there be something missing from my children's lives in not having my perspective on that? Or would Alicia have to assume my perspective and represent it? No, of course not. She would absolutely not adopt your perspective. She would right. adopt, she would adopt a hybrid perspective. She would, she would do all the things that she is trying to do. And if she was incapable of achieving that, she would adjust accordingly. Like, there is no, like, oh, now that Ben is gone, I must do everything the exact same way that Ben was doing. That's that's a little, I mean, that's a little arrogant, don't you think? 
that's kind of uh, false. That's I'm, kind of, I'm going to hit also, the same button you did. You're mischaracterizing what I said. Well, it's false dichotomy too. Like there's no two ways of doing things. Okay, but but I thought what you were saying is that in this situation where friction exists in the non-overlapping part of your parenting ethics that you have to rectify it. And I don't think you always do. What I'm saying is that there, it's the yin and the yang. They don't have to blend. They just have to support each other. Oh, uh, Let me make myself clear. Is when I said you have to discuss that friction point of the non-overlapping parts. That's not for your kids or your parenting. That's for your marriage. That's to make sure your <laughs> wife doesn't think you're a lazy POS because you go sit in the car or eat dinner before everybody's done. Yeah, I, but I don't think justifying my position is ever going to make her not think that because she's coming from the point of view of bringing up the rear. Uh, I think she's coming from the point of view of herding cattle. Uh, I like I like my analogy better than bringing up the rear. Bringing up the rear makes it sound like she's dragging her feet. She's not. She's back there with a whip making sure everybody actually moves forward. So, yeah, but just like how you talked about how someone that's bringing up the rear looks at the person that's leading from the front and says, oh, they're just being lazy, it feels the same way from the other way around. It's like, oh, they're just in there be, uh, you know, because they don't want to teach the children to actually be responsible. All right, when you say the words lead from the front, I have a completely different ethos in my mind. Like when I think of somebody that leads from the front, I'm thinking of a group of peers and there's one person that goes above and beyond and upholds like this is what you should do but doesn't force anybody else to live to that level. They're just setting the example and hoping that people come and follow them. A good leader will pull the rest of their organization with them. What it sounds like is you're just eating dinner before everybody else. (laughs) Okay. That's probably a good place to stop. (laughs) So for Bad at Logic today, uh, we have on our critical thinking cards the fallacy called middle ground this is a good one middle ground is saying that a compromise or middle point between two extremes is the truth so let's take this example that we were just talking about in my bad at husbanding <laughs> between leading from the front and bringing up the rear then the then following the middle ground fallacy then the truth must be exactly halfway between the two um that is false and because uh, because of this fallacy and because like i think alicia's doing it right and you're doing it wrong but again, right. that's that's subjective. Like, there's more objective ways of doing this. There is somebody that comes up with a crazy conspiracy theory. Like, oh, we never landed on the moon. That was all a hoax. And right. then there's the people that say, oh, well, no, we actually did land on the moon. There's scientific evidence overwhelmingly in support of the fact that we landed on the moon. Like, for example. So what's the middle ground between those two? It's like, oh, well, we probably sent. We fake part of it. Yeah, we sent, like, satellites to the moon, but we never landed on it. That That's absolutely false, too. Like, there's, like, you can't. Yeah, the, just because yes, it's you in can't the middle, compromise on the truth. There you go. That's yeah. that's the fallacy. Yes, I think so. I don't have anything else to say about that. Yeah, me either. All right, so people, bad- all right, hang on, hang on. Before we move on, people, the moon landing happened. They left reflectors. <laughs> you can shine a laser off of the moon and get an accurate measurement at any time of the day. I promise, we landed on the moon. All right, so for bad at English today. Uh, when I got to England, there was this period of about a month where I was waiting for my family to arrive, and I'd found a place to live, and then my weekends were just kind of free. So I went down to Bath, which I've probably mentioned on this um, podcast before. It's just a beautiful, wonderful town. If you ever go to England, plan a trip to Bath. Bath Tourism and, Council, sponsor the podcast. Yes, please. Uh, I, oh, man, I would love to talk about Bath on every podcast. So the Bath is so awesome, and they have this uh, 150-year-old rugby team, and I got there one night just as 
it was like the end of a rugby match. And so I kind of wandered down to the stadium and they'd stopped t- checking tickets at the gate. So I was just able to go in and watch the end of the match. And it was fantastic. So I decided then and there I was going to be a season ticket holder. So I ended up buying season tickets and going to every match. And there's a lot to learn about rugby for an American that's used to like American football. But you could kind of get on board with it. One of the things that surprised me was the vocabulary they used. Now, there were terms I'd heard before that could describe things in any sport. Like, for instance, if an athlete does something remarkable and they do it more than one time, you have a term to refer to that. Like, for instance, what do you call it in a hockey match when a, a player scores three goals? That's a hat trick. Right. You know that. It's a hat trick. Do you know why it's called a hat trick? I don't. I don't know why it's a hat trick. Yeah. uh, Apparently, uh, that term comes from cricket. It goes back like 200 years to this. (laughs) Basically, a hat trick in a cricket match is a very unlikely event when a bowler, the person pitching the ball at the wickets, hits it three times in a row and retires three consecutive batters. Okay. And three is the maximum number because then that's a side and you change teams. So you can't get more than three. But getting three is very unusual because usually they'll at least score one run in between and it's not actually a hat trick. So and, and the reason they called it a hat trick is the first one of the first guys that did it, then they pitched in, everyone bought him a hat, and so it became called a hat trick. And then we use that in hockey and we use it in rugby. But they also have a term for only scoring two. I had never heard this before. I don't think we use it in hockey. It's called a brace. And I heard the announcer in the rugby stadium say, he just scolded a brace. And I was like, a brace? What's a brace? <laughs> so, But I knew it meant two, just from the context. A brace it comes from Old English in the 1850s. It was a term used in hunting if you got two of something. Like you went rabbit hunting and you got two, you, you, you hunt, you caught a brace. Uh, it, me- it means pair in, in like Anglican. So, yeah. That's a term we could use. I guess you could call it a brace of home runs or a brace of touchdowns, but baseball and football don't lend themselves as well to the kind of terms as hockey and soccer. Ben, you do this from time to time, and this is one of those those rare moments where you have stumbled into an area where I am both bored to tears and utterly fascinated with the concept. <laughs> and I don't know how you achieve this duality, but... Um, <laughs> Like, all I can think about is, like, the five British listeners are like, oh, this is some high-class listening. And then every American listener like, what is he talking about with crickets and sides and changing teams and wickets? Um, what this does remind me of, if you don't mind me going on a tangent for a yeah. second. We were watching the U.S. Open, and my son asked the question that everybody asked when they're watching tennis. Like, why does it go from 0 to 15 to 30 uh-huh. to 40? Why is the scoring so weird? Yeah, why is the scoring so weird? And I actually looked it up and found the reason for it. I do not know the reason. I want to know. Okay, so here's the thing, is they used to keep score on clocks. And so when somebody scored, they would move it the, the minute hand to the 15, and they scored again, they move it to the 30, and then they score again, they move. It, they used to move it to the 45. The problem is you have to win by two points if you're going to win a set in tennis, right? Like oh. if you're both tied, you have to score twice. And so they were. it was difficult if both players were at 45 to tell who had the advantage at that moment. So they changed the third score to 40, and then if you had advantage, then they would move the clock hand to 45. That's fascinating. Okay, that was awesome. I'm so glad we stumbled into that. Well, Josh, (laughs) if you're bored by talking about a brace of goals in a rugby match, never fear. We're about to talk about American film director Michael Bay. Oh, Oh, Ben. Ben, Michael Bay is such a controversial figure because either he's so polarizing. Either you love his movies or you hate his movies. 
Uh, wait, wait. Let me let me rephrase what you said. Either you love his movies or you've turned thirteen. <laughs> and that that's that's the internet just classification. But I don't want to say that. Like sometimes I'm in the mood for just a mindless action nonsensical movie. And I I will I will say this. My wife and I on several occasions have sat down on the couch with alcohol and said. Let's turn our brains off and or make fun of whatever we're watching for the next hour and a half. And we will turn on a Michael Bay movie and do the Mystery Science Theater 3000 treatment the whole time. And have a good time. And have a wonderful time doing it. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, then, let us talk about the, the what is good and bad about American film director Michael Bay. All right. Do we want to start with specific movies or do we want to start with meta commentary? Kind of. Uh, both. So... Back in 1995, I want to say, Michael Bay made his debut uh, when he was sponsored by producer Jerry Bruckheimer and released Bad Boys. A classic. Everybody knows Bad Boys. It is in a way. uh, Basically, it was the first film team up of um, Martin Lawrence and Will Smith, who turned out to be a great buddy cop comedic duo. It was Will Smith kind of at the height of his like blockbuster um, you know, theater draw of mi- big hit summer films, but this was this was a rated R movie in a time when all the big blockbusters were PG thirteen. Okay. So he kind of made a hit in that genre. Uh, I didn't see Bad Boys at the time. I have since then, and it's not great. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I the first Michael Bay movie that I remember seeing. Well, actually, I say the first. There's two. There's two that I remember watching and re-watching and re-watching when I was growing up in my house, and that was The Rock, and that was Armageddon. Okay. Both classics of their time. Like, I remember buying the Armageddon soundtrack uh, for my Walkman disc player. <laughs> of like, I had course. A CD you didn't Walkman. listen to I Don't Want to Miss a Thing from Aerosmith. Uh, how, how, can you, how can you beat it? But I remember watching those movies and like, oh, this is the pinnacle of entertainment. And again, I was a, a young man and mindless action was amazing. But now, like, I don't know. I feel like you were right. At some point I grew up and looking back at those movies, like there's a lot that I just I can't stomach about them anymore. Yeah. And it feels like he hasn't really learned his lesson, although there's a little bit of evidence that he might have. So producer Jerry Bruckheimer, who's had some great hits, but he is kind of known for this bombastic high-budget action kind of genre, um, found Michael Bay and kind of put him to work, and he made Bad Boys, which kind of tips at about the 50% level on the Rotten Tomatoes tomato meter. and But it made enough money and, and started this trend of Michael Bay's career, of kind of this big discrepancy between how much money he makes at the box office and whether or not people actually think his films are good, which shows that there's this thing that we want is a you know, movie going public of like <laughs> something else other than what is critic worthy of critical praise. So we're making a lot of assumptions about if people actually know Michael Bay movies. He's only directed 15 films. The Bad Boys, the f- six, five Transformer movies, uh, the, the Rock Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, The Island, Pain and Gain, 13 Hours, Six Underground and Ambulance. That's it. That's all of his movies. Well, He's all- since become a producer and produces movies like the, the most recent remake of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, God Save His Soul. Ugh. Ugh. That movie was <laughs> beyond trash. No, but like the – all right, so the movies that he directs though have a very clear vision 
Like all right. they, they all look the same. Like you could like uh, you could almost blind taste test these movies and say, oh yeah, these were made by the same guy. Yeah, it's like he has a film vocabulary, but he doesn't know how to speak any other words, and he doesn't know why he's using those ones. But he doesn't have to. Like, and this is the the running gag with Michael Bay is that yes, he is known for his big action. He is known for big visual effects, like a lot of explosions, a lot of ridiculous over the top CGI. Typically, like some kind of combative scenes. If we're talking about the Transformers, especially car chases. Oh my goodness, the car chases, explosions, Michael Bay explosions. There's a whole Adult Swim like skit about making fun of Michael Bay and how many explosions that he has. Link in the show notes. Uh, there was a South Park episode that we're talking about where Michael Bay was describing ideas. I put ideas in air quotes, and like the the guy that he was talking to goes, "Those aren't ideas; those are special effects." And Michael Bay goes, "Well, same thing." <laughs> like so, he does the same shots like he's very into the cinematography like i want there to be this circular panning shot of a hero at this specific moment in this specific way like it, yeah the the movies all look and feel the same he's been doing this for 15 years and he kind of he's kind of a known quantity like if you're hiring him you know what you're gonna get and that's what you want just this bombastic loud brash bright colors big explosions set piece action scenes kind of thing in 30 years of making films he's averaged about one every other year and he still he's still making movies as of this year wow however i don't know if he's not open to criticism but his movie that came out this year ambulance uh with jake gyllenhaal which i haven't seen yet but i'm actually willing to try uh is his highest rated film since the rock which was his second movie and He's had some, you know, almost down in the single digits as far as the, you know, tomato meter goes. <laughs> so uh, we've talked about, you know, what his style is. I want to talk about some of the problems with the, with his style. Now, I got to admit, when I was researching this, I found this clip of him where he was doing the stage appearance for a vendor that he was being sponsored by. And he'd gone out there on stage and he seemed obviously uncomfortable and he was a bit nervous. And then his teleprompter was malfunctioning and he kind of just had a meltdown and left the stage. He didn't yell at anyone. He didn't, you know, do one of those like entitled rich guy kind of things. He was just kind of like, oh, this is really uncomfortable and terrible and I don't know what to do. And I'm just going to run off the stage. And it, <laughs> and it was really kind of human. And I was like, then I felt some sympathy towards the guy. And I'm like, is all of this internet hate that he gets in the form of parodies and sitcoms and social media mentions and, sh- and even being talked about on this podcast, does he not deserve it? No, he absolutely deserves it because so there's only there's only two things that he could be, right? Either he is just completely unaware of the kinds of films that he makes and he just keeps making it over and over and doesn't understand all the criticism that he's receiving which is highly unlikely, I think, for someone at this level of success. Or he knows exactly what he's doing. And the fact that, like you're talking about, like he's got these movies with single digits Rotten Tomato reviews, but they still make hundreds of millions of dollars at the box office when they come out. And so, like, I I honestly believe that he is a very smart filmmaker, and he's just of the opinion, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like, oh, people are talking smack about, like, the storytelling in all my Transformers movies. But each one of them made, like, stupid amounts of money. So why would I change anything? Obviously, I'm giving the people what they want. People respond to incentives, as you're so fond of saying. 
I'll never understand the way in Hollywood there'll be a movie like a Transformers movie that's an absolute critical bomb and they'll just make sequel after sequel after sequel and then they'll make a Star Wars movie that actually gets a pretty good critical reception and is a box office success and they consider it a failure and stop. Uh, well, this is all the economics and the backdoor politicking that we don't see as the general public. This is like eight guys that have all the money and control all of the Hollywood talent discussing whether or not this is something or a project that they want to go forward with. Hmm. There's also something to be said about if you make a killer Star Wars movie that everyone loves, the only where the only direction you can go is down. <laughs> yeah, regression to the mean. Okay, so you said your first was The Rock. It was also my first, so let's take a few minutes and talk about The Rock. Uh, I mean, this just introduced me to Sean Connery as a young man and just how amazing that accent is. You never watched is. any James Bond movies? Uh, dude, I'm I'm too I'm too young for that. Like, okay, okay. Not, not when I was not around when Sean Connery was James Bond. Well, but me either. But, but I was. This was an introduction to me as Sean Connery as like one of the first actors that I can remember. Where it's not like oh Sean Connery does a wonderful part playing this role. It's Sean Connery is in this movie and he's playing Sean Connery and he just has these lines in this part of the story. <laughs> like, oh, he's supposed to be he's supposed to have a Spanish accent in this one. Like, oh, we don't care. It's Sean Connery. He's Scottish. Like, we don't yeah, we 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 don't you don't go to see Sean Connery and expect him to have a different accent. Like, that's not Okay. A thing. So this comes out a year after Bad Boys and it's set on Alcatraz Island in the San Francisco Bay. Give a give a plot outline. Oh my gosh, the plot outline is this general steals a bunch of chemical weapons from some base, takes over Alcatraz Island and fortifies it and basically turns full terrorist. He says, "I will drop chemical weapons across all of San San Francisco or San Diego, I don't remember which San it is, all across this city unless I get this like giant amount of money that we're going to give to, you know, veterans of soldiers that died okay. in other countries." Okay. Okay, good. I'm glad you remembered that detail. I may I submit that <laughs> disillusioned Brigadier General Francis Hummel, played by Ed Harris in The Rock, is potentially the most sympathetic villain of all time. Hmm. He has ethics. He has respect. He has a, a worthy cause. He has limits. He all he wants is to take this money, and it isn't just any money. He doesn't just want generic taxpayer money he's identified a specific corrupt government slush fund and he wants that money yeah it's from so, uh, the money that the government earns from illegal arms sales to third world countries yes so give me the money that we're that we're using to exploit third world countries and instead i'm going to use it to honor these veterans that have been swept under the carpet because they were doing secret missions that your government doesn't want you to know about so he's going to make their cause known he's going to Everything he wanted was good, except for the fact that he was threatening to kill the populace of Los, uh, of San Francisco. All right, Ben, uh, two things for you. One, make a mental note. We need to do a bonus episode on the most sympathetic villains in cinematic history that we are aware of. Okay, good. And then second, um, I agree. This is a good contender for that. Like, he is such a sympathetic villain with such strong, like, ties to, like, you feel, you kind of feel for the guy that they had to replace him as the main villain later in the film. Because, spoilers for The Rock, everyone, when he decided that he didn't want to go through with it because the whole thing was a bluff and he's not going to kill civilians because he's not a monster, there was, like, two mercenary, like, company-grade officers that basically did a quick coup and, like, oh, well, we're totally going to nuke the city because we said we're going to. Yeah. Now, if you remember, it wasn't nukes. It was it, chemical were, weapons. Uh, I said chemical that. Chemical weapons. It was VX poison gas rockets, Ben. Don't, 
Judge, don't yeah, school yeah. me on the ner- nerve agent, a very potent nerve agent. Which, for some reason, the guidance system was put in before, like the chemical compound, and they were in little beads. Like this was the stupidest design for a chemical weapon you could it, think it, of. It wasn't. It, it was. It was the cinematic equivalent of like. Uh, Rube Goldberg contraption, you know, where you want the audience to feel like they understand something complex in engineering that would otherwise be boring and invisible. I have zero respect for military procurement processes, but even these rockets, I feel like somebody on the military side would have stopped the contract and be like, um, hey, so just, you know, real quick, this is the dumbest way that you can store chemicals <laughs> in a rocket. Why don't we just put a panel on the bottom for accessing the targeting computer? Why aren't these in tanks? Like, I don't get it. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, it was it was so that there could be one rolling across the ground where they're fighting about it. No, it's, it's so he could take one and shove it in the mouth of the bad guy and just ugh, really melt his face off. Yeah, except that that's not how it works. It, it, uh, so <laughs> many, so many, so many problems with that. Anyway, oh, oh, neither of us have even mentioned the fact that Nick Cage is in this movie. He's the protagonist. Oh, he's the blank slate. That's the every man that makes us feel like we could Nick's, do this. Nick Cage is never a blank slate. Okay, yeah, that's fair enough. There's an entire community episode like, is Nick Cage a good actor? And they don't, they don't ever come to a conclusion. Yeah. So I think one of the things that really makes this work for me is I'd grown up hearing about and knowing about Alcatraz Island. And somebody's like, you know, we could really make an interesting movie about because Alcatraz Island is defunct as a prison. But what if we actually turned it back into a prison and now you have to escape from it? And it became a a heist, a prison break. And I can anybody could get behind that. Yes, except for the fact that it was like 80 years after it's been an operational prison, and for some reason the furnaces are still blasting fire in the same timing. Like it, not just blasting fire, it was like that scene from Galaxy Quest where they were yes. trying to get through the... It was like the chompers. It's <laughs> the like, oh, I spent room. two weeks memorizing the timing of the flamethrower blasts in this furnace of this prison that hasn't been in operation for 80 years. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, hang on See, a second. We also stumbled. You reminded me. Uh, there's another Michael Bay trope that he does that I'm just now realizing. He always has some snarky smart guy that mm-hmm. like, is super superior that boils it down for us. Like, he's like, oh, this is the smartest person in the room, so you should totally listen to him. Right. It's like, oh, if I had a teaspoon of this chemical and I poured it on the table, it would kill everyone in the room. But if I dispersed it at 80,000 feet, it could kill everyone within a city block. And like this, this supposed authority figure on science will boil it down and give us the stakes in a nice little – package that one we understand and two is coming from a character that like you're kind of a jerk but you're super smart and you know it so we're gonna let it slide so i want to call this pandering this is (laughs) this is a characteristic that exists in all of his movies he's pandering to you the audience maybe it's just him being consistent with his ethic that he's making movies for 12 year olds okay but the smart guy the person that's actually smart in the room has to be a superior snooty kind of right. jerk about it you just you can instantly identify that they're the smart person so you just trust whatever they say and then they boil it down to just a little tiny you know tidbit that you can digest does michael bay think all smart people are superior snooty look down their nose jerks that's a good question was he traumatized in high school was he like a jock <laughs> and some nerd <laughs> Who picked hurt on you, him? michael bay yeah what smart the podcast you? um <laughs> okay another one i want to say is is a subreddit called i'm 14 and this is funny it wasn't so much present in the rock maybe more so uh, okay it definitely wasn't bad boys in a lot so in later movies uh i'm looking at you like whatever transform movies where the robot was peeing on the on the antagonist (laughs) that was the first transformers movie 
or the second one where the the construction equipment uh, had the giant uh, like wrecking balls as testicles. Oh, that was the second one. Yeah. Okay. So yes, I'm 14 and this is funny. Present in almost all of his movies, as well as this pandering. Um, some of the other characteristics that 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 are problematic in his movies, he objectifies women just to no end in 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 every movie. Okay, so. This kind of stumbles into the idea of does he know what he's doing or is he just like that's what he thinks normal is. Yeah, or just what he thinks normal is. And I've seen a lot of YouTube documentaries where they break down and think, no, this guy is very smart in filmmaking and he knows exactly what he's doing. And he is appealing to the lowest level of American society because those are the people that are going to go see these movies. Hmm. Like there is, there's one scene in um, one of the Transformers movies, the one with uh, Marky Mark. Uh, I don't even know his real name anymore, but uh, Mark Wahlberg. Mark Wahlberg, thank you. Where his daughter is 17 in the movie, like this is a plot point where his yes. daughter is 17 and dating some older guy. And the movie, this high pace super action movie, takes like a full two minutes out of the screen time to explain that Texas has this uh, Romeo and Juliet law. Where if they were dating when they were both underage and then one person comes of age, it's not considered statutory rape. And the guy and the kid pulled out a laminated card with the printed text of the law on it. And like this was all dedicated screen time of of a blockbuster movie. This one. Yes. And that's insane. Right? In a movie where he can't okay, another thing that bothers me with Michael Bay, they can't bother to take thirty seconds to explain this jump cut that's coming that's gonna take us to another yeah, country. But we'll spend two minutes explaining uh, uh, uh Romeo and Juliet dating law. laws. Yes, and so that that this guy in this documentary used that as evidence of, oh no, Michael Bay knows exactly what he's doing and he's huh. just putting this up on the screen because one, it makes money. Okay, that is good evidence that he knows what he's doing. Well, so then this goes back Yeesh. to the does this go back to the objectifying women comment? Is he doing this on purpose as a social commentary of like he is, actually just objectifies women, or he just knows that'll sell? Or is it is it even deeper? Is it does it is it so bad that it wraps around to the other side of being artistic, where it's like he's calling it, and it's a social commentary on how we as a society expect women to be depicted in movies? Uh, I'm gonna go back to the uh, Hanlon's razor on this one. <laughs> it's probably just because it made a lot of money. <laughs> oh, because she's hot, and we want to see her in a bikini. And even though I am kind of a feminist, I can't disagree with that. Yes, I like seeing attractive women in as little clothing as possible. Yeah. So another one that he's kind of been called out for, and again, I, I, I if we're gonna use that same principle that you just that you just proposed, I don't know that this one also could apply, and that is he's been highly criticized for racial stereotypes. Oh, in what sense? Just um, what, the one that comes out most is in some of the later Transformers movies, the ones I stopped watching. Uh, there's two characters called uh, Mudflap and Skids. Yes, where they're like almost comically racial uh, caricatures. Yes, comically racial caricatures. There, there, there's other stuff too. I mean, there's like one from I think Bad Boys two or three where they show up at a KKK rally, and of course bust it up and do yeah, all yeah. The things that you would expect two black cops at a KKK rally to do. Right, 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 right. Um, um, okay, it, it, and it's not just there. It's it's kind of all over the place. So so if we're applying the same principle, is it that that's what people want to see? They want to see racial stereotypes, and so you're just giving it to them. And this is a reflection of society, or is he just kind of racist and doesn't realize he's doing it? 
is this just oh and also as the director he doesn't have a hundred percent control over the characters or the writing right like it's like 90 percent control there's also some input sure. from the outside sure but yeah it's like oh well these aren't you know people they're robots so we can get away with these comical caricatures that people think are funny but are inappropriate to put in a movie anymore is are they just trying to capitalize or again could it be social commentary it's like well this is what you people want to see as bad as you think it is when it's people if it's robots oh well, we'll go see overtly racist robots all day <laughs> that makes me wonder what other proxies we have like that for dealing with difficult to address topics not that i feel like they were sensitively and appropriately dealt with here but you know, where we just like, oh, it's a robot, it's fine. I, I've also heard criticism of things like, for instance, the classic story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, and how some <laughs> of the some of the you know characters that are abstracted away as like fantasy characters, or, or the Lord of the Rings, you know, are, are, could potentially represent races of people instead of just fantasy. Well, I mean that some of that goes back to writers write what they know. And yeah. like, we're talking about Lord of the Rings specifically. That guy grew up in, what, the 1920s and 30s where there were very marginalized races and, like, overtly marginalized, like, not even hidden. Like, everybody marginalized them in the open. We had segregation in this country for how long? It took the 1960s yeah. before that stuff went away? Yeah, so what's your excuse, Michael Bay? Well, All right. Are, are the, uh, is he shining a light on it or is he capitalizing on it? Because one of those is bad and one of those is good. I, let's just leave it ambiguous. Because I don't know. You, the listener, you can decide. Is Michael Bay a filmmaking genius or is he just rolling in the piles of money that we give him every summer? And and he's doing it by pandering, objectifying women and being a racist. And and just appealing to our our most base, terrible instincts. So another way that he does this is action over story. You've mentioned how, you know, there's just no actual respect for having the viewer follow along, understanding the plot, knowing what's happening. It, it happens so often, like it drives me nuts. There, the, the last Transformers movie I saw, I think it was the last night. I think is the one they did a jump cut from one country to like from like they were discussing something in a room to they were in the middle of a battle, and the transition to justify the jump cut was a voiceover of one of the characters saying, "All right, well, let's go to this place and do the thing." Like they didn't even show the character saying those words. It was clearly recorded in post. It's almost, <laughs> it's almost like Michael Bay doesn't understand that you have to have transition sentences between paragraphs. It's like, okay, well, the vital plot points were said, and so now I want to get to a big action scene. And like, okay, well, we need to take 30 seconds and show them on a plane. No, I don't want to show them on a plane. I just want to go right to the shooting. Or and he like, ran out of budget for shooting the plane transition and still needed a way to lace his expensive set pieces together. Maybe, and like, but it's so dumb it's so prevalent in all of his films that it happens all the time like in armageddon one of my when i was a kid one of my favorite films yeah i I, I remember this scene was so jarring even as a kid i i said to myself well that's kind of weird and it was they were out looking at like one of the vehicles or something on in a field and it showed bruce willis his silhouette walking on top of some like space tank and the sun was setting in the background, so you couldn't really see him. And they did a voiceover. You couldn't see his face. You couldn't see his mouth moving. But a voiceover, Bruce Willis saying, and now it's time for underwater simulation. Jump cut to the guys in, like, the spacesuits in that 30-foot deep pool in NASA doing something. 
and even 12-year-old Josh that was that was licking this stuff up out of Michael Bay's palms knew there was a problem. Even 12-year-old, like, total action junkie Josh went, oh, that transition was so fast, I got a little whiplash. <laughs> All right, I think this is a good spot to talk about uh, something that we use as a lens for examining intellectual properties on the Bad at Magic podcast, and that is Brandon Sanderson's Laws of Magic. Now, <laughs> because this is a Bad at Magic podcast, we kind of extrapolate magic away and just have this be elements of storytelling so he has three laws they are the author or director's ability to solve a conflict is directly proportional to how well the viewer understands the magic system okay and secondly the limitations of the magic system are more interesting than its capabilities yes. and third expand on what you already have before you add something new those kind of give you some boundaries for giving economy of whatever it is that you're using as your medium for telling the story. Like, for instance, in the Transformers universe, it's the fact that we have these talking robots from another galaxy. Well, uh, 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 I'm glad that you started talking about this, because I was going to say, like, all of his human films, they almost adhere to this okay. Like, they do an okay job. Like, he sets yeah. up the problem. Sure. And then in The Rock, they're, they're, they're on Alcatraz Island. They've got the, get, the, the terrorism agent, and here are the rules. They explained to us how the VX gas works. They told us at the beginning that the only way to, 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 to not die from it is to shove this needle into your heart. Like, yeah, there's, he set the rules, and then they abide by them. Same thing in Armageddon. It's like, oh, well, we're going to put a nuclear missile, and if we hit this depth, it will blow it up, and it will be small enough that it won't destroy the planet. Yes. But in the Transformers movies, all of that, the entire magic system goes out the window. Okay, so I want to talk about what's going on there, because Brandon Sanderson has a fourth law. He calls it the zeroth law of magic, which is always err on the side of that which is awesome. The rule of cool. Here's the problem with that. You can't, you have to have restraint <laughs> utilizing the rule of cool. Like, you can't just always do that which is cool. Yeah. So why, at the beginning of every single Transformers movie, is Optimus Prime already dead? Like, he's already dead <laughs> at the beginning of every single movie. And then at the end of the movie, he has been resurrected, he has killed the bad guy, and he is standing in a triumphant pose in front of a sunset saying, this will never happen again, and we will protect mankind from all of Earth. Yeah. yeah. And then the next movie, it starts, and he's already dead. No explanation. He's just dead. So I think that's why I stopped after two Transformer movies, and there's been five or six. I, I lost count. <laughs> um, as a child, I loved Transformers. The toys, the cartoons, the movie, all of it. Just it, it, I adored it. Same with Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Then Michael Bay comes along and just ruins it. Like, ruins it. Michael Bay, like, of them. Ninja Turtles, that was a travesty. I think that's why I'm dedicating an entire episode of my podcast to this, is because I <laughs> I feel, like, personally slighted that that we just took this. It's like, it's like he makes cotton candy, and he knows that people like cotton candy, but you can't eat cotton candy for a meal. Is that what it is, or is it just he's trying to profit off of intellectual property that's already established? Like, he doesn't have to write anything. Like, I oh, don't know. I don't he, see other IPs lining up to be like, oh, you know what we really need to get our, our, our you know, uh, Avatar The Last Bender off, the Airbender off the ground is we need Michael Bay to direct the next movie. Uh, you know what? We're, we're, we're failing again. We need to think of Hanlon's Razor. Hanlon's Razor. Uh, we're giving him too much credit. Ignorance over malice. Like, maybe he's just sitting in a room somewhere going, what would make... Excellent visuals. And then like, oh, giant transforming robots, obviously. Good. So that's another one of the problems is that he has this film vocabulary that he uses 
but he's indiscriminate with it. Like he does this shot he's very famous from yeah. where the camera's like down looking up at the hero and rotating around them. It's very dramatic. It gives parallax with the background rotating and stuff like that. But he does it at times where it's it's nonsensical in, in the storyline. Well, no, it's he always uses it in a scene where there's already high action going on and he wants to show the reaction of a character that's not directly involved with the action. And so we don't ever want to lose the pace. Like, Ben, we've got this dialed up to 11. I am not going to dial it back to 9 just to show the reaction of somebody that we have to have for the storytelling. I'm going to keep it at 11. And by and the way I'm going to do that is with this cool parallax rotating shot to make even just looking at a person's face high action. Okay. So I get that with a film like Bad Boys or The Rock or Armageddon, which were his first three, where you just are trying to be bombastic. Now, that same summer that Bruce Willis and Ben Affleck and Liv Tyler came out with Armageddon, there was another movie called Deep Impact. Do you remember that one? I saw Deep Impact, and I think it was a lot more of an intellectual take on what the apocalypse would look like. It was like, what if we actually had a human lifeboat and we had to figure out who's going to go on it? Now, that really engages your brain, and, and that one had Morgan Freeman in it, and I dug it. Morgan um, Freeman is president, by the way. At, at the time, I was more into Armageddon, you know, the, the bombastic, big action, send, yeah. send every man up on a rocket ship. It could be you, and blow up a nuclear weapon to stop Earth from being destroyed. It doesn't matter how much money we have. It doesn't matter how well-prepared the government is. We're always going to need blue-collar Southern American workers to save the planet, Ben. Okay, do you remember what his next movie after that was? I don't. It was Pearl Harbor. Oh, jeez. Okay, so hang on. We rip on the Star Wars prequels a lot in this uh, in this podcast, but I have to say the love story in Pearl Harbor was <laughs> so bad. Like it's right up there on like Natalie Portman and uh, Christian or Anakin Skywalker. Like it was that bad. I can't I can't even tell what he was going for. You know, it's like he wanted to be um you know, he wanted to be saving private Ryan, but he still wanted it to be Armageddon. Ah, it, it, uh, it was Well, he, okay. he he wanted it to be like you're talking about. It. He wanted it to be this this awesome period piece that you could hold up and be like this is an amazing movie of this event. But at the same time, like it just felt like he just wanted his visuals. Like, even him as the director was impatient to get to the visual effects. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, like, in episode 81 of Bad at Magic, we talked about the history of the Air Force, and we talked about the Doolittle Raid. The Doolittle Raid was like the last hour of this movie, and the weird uh, comeback from the dead love triangle thing. Ugh. Uh, I, I'll never forget when I went to see this in theaters and I didn't know it was three hours long and I drank like a whole 44 ounce big gulp and, it, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sitting there waiting for this thing to get over and I've got a pee so bad I can barely stand it. But I, you know, I, I was committed. I was committed to sitting in that seat and I barely remember anything that was going on because how bad I had to go to the bathroom. Nice. That, that that tells a lot about how good the movie was that you can barely remember because you had to pee it, instead. It, it was rated 24%. So it was his lowest rated movie to date by that point. Uh, you know, it was just, it was bombast where it wasn't needed. And it was, <laughs> he you know, saw, there's so much he, human drama. He saw that feedback and he's like, well, obviously everyone hated it when I tried to tell a legitimate story about characters. So forget that. We're going to double down on visual effects and nonsense. And go back to Bad Boys 2, probably his worst movie. 
I, I guess it, it, the Transformer movie, the you know fourth and fifth ones are also just really horrible. Well, um, they're they're objectively horrible, but they still made enough money to warrant sequels. <laughs> this is the thing. Like we can talk, we can sit here on our in our ivory tower and talk about oh these movies are terrible and the storytelling is a nightmare and the magic system doesn't apply to it all and he's just rolling in the cash that people threw at him in handfuls to go see that movie. Yeah, another thing about him that I think is kind of characteristic of his films, other than the rampant um, co- commercialism and product placement, that's oh, almost a visually visual characteristic of his movies like you said they make movie they make money before they're even out the door yes um is that he seems to always still be able to draw a list tier one top build hollywood actors like they're lining (laughs) up for this so either they're in on the joke too or they don't know ah again so what is it do you think it's money or do you think that this is so deep such a deep cut commentary that we don't get it i don't know like hey Here's Michael Bay. He's never made a movie that makes less than two hundred million dollars. Sign, sign here, and we'll give you two percent of the profits. Oh, and I well, as long as you get like a percentage of the product placement too, because there is a scene where Mark Wahlberg, again, super high high paced, fantastic wall to wall action movie, takes thirty full seconds for him to step out of a car, pick up I think it was a Pepsi or a Bud Light off of the ground. It was a Bud Light, and then and drink it in slow motion in front of a Bud Light like billboard. Like holy crap, how much did they pay for that? Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's not just that. I mean, uh, one of my favorite film reviewers, Eric D. Snyder, said of Bad Boys 2, there are so many gunfights that even Marcus comments on it at one point. And when Martin Lawrence is the lone voice of reason in your film, then, buddy, you're in trouble. <laughs> Was Bad Boys the, the movie where Will Smith got that shot where he's put, he's like leaning against a wall and then like he puts a gun real close to the camera and like sticks it in the keyhole of the door? Was that uh, maybe because I just love the meme of that where people took that scene where he's like putting the gun clearly into a keyhole of a door and then it pans over to the other side of the door and people will cut it to be like a Disney princess, like looking through the keyhole of the same door. <laughs> That's it. That movie hated me before I hated it. OK, now, but but none of that as much as I wanted Pearl Harbor to be a historically accurate uh, but Michael Bay eyes version of history so I could learn it and enjoy it. Uh, the movie I was the most disappointed about was his 2005 movie with Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson, The Island. Yes. And I'll tell you like that. It, it's such a fascinating concept that just turns into a, an hour and a half car chase. Yeah. Okay. So it's set in this like dystopian universe where uh, spoilers for the island. Uh, there is this place where there are all these beautiful people living with the promise that someday they're going to be called to go to someplace better. And in actuality, what it is is they're genetic blanks that are copies of some analog in the real world. And if they're ever called up, it means that that person needs an organ transplant and they're going to die. And they're all beautiful, amazing people because these only like celebrities and professional athletes can afford this service of having perfect genetic copies of their organs. And so they're kept very well care of high nutrition, good lifestyle. Yeah. And they're all just it's it's yeah. And they're just being lied to that. This is oh, well, we're going to go off and go to a better place. No, your organs are going to be harvested because you're not really a person. 
so the first half of this movie absolutely drew me in. You know, this I'd never seen this particular dystopian sci-fi concept dealt with in film before. Yeah, you get and, the uh, Ewan McGregor has this just kind of foreboding sense that all is not well in the world. Yes, and it's like it kind of a slow burn and build up and finding these things. And yeah, it's it's interesting and it does suck you in. And then they get outside and then they're just driving down the freeway and cars are blowing up and like it, 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 no attempt at at intellectual dialogue at all. Like at no point does Ewan McGregor try to get in front of a camera or like talk to a, any kind of news reporter and be like, "This is what's happening that people need to be aware of." No, it's just mindless action. Yeah, it asks so many que- the the concept that it was based on asks so many questions about humanity and about uh, uh, you know uh, um, the eth- ethic. What is the word for ethics? The ethics of the idea that we could potentially come up with a science science scientific concept where you could take and create another living being that doesn't have the right to live. Yeah, what is the the philosophical conundrum of creating an artificial life? What responsibilities do you owe to it? And the film asks all of these questions and answers none of them. Nope, leaves them on the table and is like, oh, hey, now that you've like racked your brain on a philosophical conundrum, here's some car chases. Boom. boom. <laughs> did, did they think that once he's, did he think that once he set up all those concepts that what we wanted to see was Ewan McGregor and Scarlett Johansson get away? Like, that's what we wanted? Well, I want to see Scarlett Johansson do just about anything. So he was right on that <laughs> point. And like, I can, I can. I can safely say for my wife and probably a lot of the female listeners of this podcast that they want to see Ewan McGregor do just about anything. Yeah. Yeah. So he does one of my least favorite movie uh, cliches, um, and it's the second gun. He definitely did it in Bad Boys. (laughs) Yes. Yes. You're you're bad guy. You've disabled him. He's, you know, you've taken, you've prevented him from committing the crime and now it's time for him to go to jail and appear for a judge and all the boringness that goes along with our criminal justice system but no he has a second gun and it gives our protagonist a reason to blow him away so that he'll never see the inside of a courtroom <sighs> yeah yeah and again is that what audiences want i didn't even when i was 12 i was like no that's not what's supposed to happen <laughs> it, it's just an action movie trope it, it's it's almost like they have to put in the second gun or else like the legal team from Warner Brothers is going to come down and be like, you can't show the hero committing mass murder like for no reason. It always has to be in self-defense, even though I'm pretty sure in Bad Guys 2, the good guys killed way more people than the bad guys ever did. I like that you called it bad guys. <laughs> did I, I, I thought Mark, Mark Wahlberg, who frequently makes movies for... With Michael Bay made that movie called The Good Guys that was supposed to be, I think, a parody of the trope of bad boys, uh, you know, buddy cop movies that are bombastic and ridiculous. That's true. That is a good movie with Mark Wahlberg, by the way. Yeah. 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 Will and, Ferrell. And, yeah. and Will Ferrell. Yep. Um, so we've talked about I'm 14 and this funny and pandering and objectifying women and racial stereotypes and all that. There's one more that he does that you'll probably agree with. And that is he has this element of patriotism to the point of toxicity oh yeah toxic patriotism military worship kind of thing yes it is um a lot of the military service will always go out of its way to work with michael bay he's always very respectful of the military they have military consultants Uh, they have correct uniforms they have the correct well correct ish hardware 
and every scene they're like standing in front of a flag with their hands on their hips i mean it's just it's it's absurd it's yeah it feels pandering like again when i was 13 years old and still believed in all this stuff i'm like yeah america and then now looking back and it's like this is way over the top to the point of like we should stop and ask some questions here so I had just gotten back from a deployment in 2016 where I'd been a little bit isolated from like knowing what movies were out and the box office kind of thing. And this new movie had come out called 13 Hours. Did you see it? No, I haven't seen 13 Hours. Okay, it's a Michael Bay movie. Spoiler alert. I didn't realize it was at the time. All I saw is that it was a film put-to-film version of a biography that was written about what happened at the U.S. Embassy in Benghazi. Oh, Okay. And so I was interested in it, and I went to see it. And then I found out it was a Michael Bay movie, and then I was like, oh, no, not Pearl Harbor again. And it was filled, (laughs) filled with this toxic patriotism. And it was interesting because it happened in this sweet spot where there was a lot of political hay being made in 2016 over the events. If you remember, that was a time that Donald Trump was running for the presidency, and he was criticizing Hillary Clinton as as Secretary of— Defense. No, not Defense. State. Secretary of State, and those were her people in that compound, and what her decision making was, and who knew what, when, and all that kind of stuff. So this film came out; it was telling one person's story of it. But everywhere that the there might have been a blank in the book, or maybe even not then, Michael Bay filled it with this toxic patriotism. I remember these contractors were portrayed as like, I don't know, down on their luck soldiers. Like every scene that they weren't firing a gun or chasing someone with the car, they were staring at pictures of their family with a flag in the background. <laughs> they were just good old boys trying to make ends meet and this is what they were good at and so they're just doing their best yeah because they love america so much Ugh. Ugh. yeah like okay like listeners i'm this is a controversial stance that i'm taking but we're not always the good guys yeah like we're we're just not and it definitely isn't always these pure motives no i mean like Exhibit A is the entire Iran-Contra thing. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go look it up. I'm not going into details. We are not always the good guys. Yeah. So I made a list. I don't know if you did as well of my five worst oh, Michael Bay movies. You can't. You can't. Like, it's just a, oh, all the Michael Bay movies are the worst Michael Bay movies. Just which one no. do I hate even more? So we both kind of have a soft spot for The Rock and Armageddon. I'll give you that one. Uh, his latest movie that came out with Jake Gyllenhaal called Ambulance is another heist film, which I already am a little bit inclined towards. And it's got the same uh, tomato meter rating as The Rock. So I think I'm going to give that one a chance. Those are my three that maybe aren't actually that bad. My five worst, starting at number five, Bad Boys 2. Same problem as Lethal Weapon 4. Every every stereotype you think that you laughed at because of Martin Lawrence and, and Will Smith, but dialed up to 11, and it's just toxic and horrible and bad. <laughs> okay. Did you have a five? Uh, number five worst movie? Yeah. Okay, so I'm going to say the entire Transformers franchise because they, oh. are, they get increasingly ridiculous as time goes on. They have every Michael Bay trope. They have absolutely no dedication to storytelling whatsoever continuity issues galore oh my goodness like this is where like okay this is the thing that he does that drives me the most crazy is jump cuts between time and space and it's like if the camera switches from one scene to another with no transition in the middle like you could be on an alternate earth for all you know and you're not going to get any explanation from him ben ben 
the movie I keep talking about with Mark Wahlberg, the Transformers movie, he was in the on his farm in the middle of what is supposed to be like Oklahoma or, or Texas desert, like just like high plains, prairie, middle of nowhere, okay? And the government comes down and he just resurrects Optimus Prime because Optimus Prime was dead and he's a mechanic so he can bring back advanced alien life from being dead on his own with a crescent wrench somehow. I, I'm not questioning that. What I'm questioning is then, <laughs> what I'm questioning is they get into a car chase with, you know, nameless government black SUVs, okay? And it jump cuts from them being on dirt roads to like he makes this, like the, that, that classic sliding left turn. And then it jump cuts and he's on a freeway in the middle of a city somewhere. And then like my wife and I were both like, we were well into our cups as far as alcohol was concerned at this point. And both of us stopped and paused. We were like, wait a minute, where, where the crap are we now? Like he was supposed to be on his farm in the middle of nowhere. And now we're in a city continuing the same car chase. And the, uh, uh, this is not the only movie he does this. And I'm going to bring this up. Like these jump cuts in this movie are between space. There are other jump cuts between time, but I'll save that for my next movie. Okay, so have you watched all of the Transformer movies? And if so, why? <laughs> like I said at the beginning of this thing, if my wife and I want to like have a few hours all right, free all right. and we want to laugh at something and make fun of it, we genuinely have a good time making fun of these Michael Bay movies in real time. Like, have you ever been in a movie with your spouse and like try to say something while the movie's going and they get mad at you? Like, shh. Stop, the movie's playing. <laughs> These yeah, are not like, those movies. Hey, don't you have something to say about this? Because, no, no, no. Uh, We'll have a 15-minute conversation as the movie's going and miss nothing because there's yeah. nothing happening. Okay, well done. Number four on my list is Pearl Harbor. I've already talked about that one enough. Number three, The Island, a fascinating sci-fi concept. Hugh McGregor and Scarlett Johansson absolutely wasted. What a terrible lost opportunity. I don't. I don't know that we'll ever see that one get remade. But what a what a gem that would be. Uh, number two, Transformers: Revenge of the Fallen. This is where I got off the Transformers train. <laughs> that was like the second one, wasn't it? Yeah. Wow. I haven't seen a single one since then. And number one, we haven't talked about it yet. Six Underground, which just came out on Netflix a couple years ago. I was going to bring that one up as my jump cuts through time. Okay, so I love ryan reynolds and he was top billed in this one again like i said big gets these a-list hollywood actors who doesn't love ryan reynolds that's no no that was 75 percent of the reason we watched this movie even when i watched green lantern i was like uh okay but i like i still like ryan reynolds do it do it one of my new favorite pastimes is is watch anything with ryan reynolds in it and count how many times you see aviation gym just somewhere in the shot Okay. And Six Underground was one of them. They went to a bar, and there was one shot where they're like, oh, I'll have By some By the way, gin. Aviation Gin is Ryan Reynolds' own brand. Yeah, Ryan Reynolds. Actually, he sold it, I guess, but he still hawks it. Like, he doesn't own it anymore, but he's still involved with the business, and so it's still on everything that he does. Okay. But there's one shot in the movie where he's at a bar, and he just puts his finger up, and then half of the, half of the shot of your television is a close-up of Aviation Gin bottle, and the other half is Ryan Reynolds smiling and enjoying it. <laughs> okay, so here's what happened with Six Underground. Because it was billed as just like a happy-go-lucky uh, team of of action heroes getting together to pull off a heist to save the world. And I thought, okay, I can get on board for that. So I sat down at Netflix, and I turned it on, 
and I did not make it 10 minutes, and I felt like I'd eaten three rolls of cotton candy, and I turned it off. <laughs> you didn't finish the movie? I turned it off. You... I couldn't take it. Oh, I ben. couldn't take it. It was all the snappy, pithy dialogue. It was the things where, like, they were jumping a car off a, off a curb so that it would flip upside down so they could reach out the sunroof and hand a gun to the guy who was running across the rooftops. I mean, I, I couldn't. You, you, I could not. You... I, I had had too much cotton candy at that point. Oh, oh, you missed so many stupid, stupid things in that movie. There was a whole setup where they had to break into this penthouse at the top of this building that was impossible to break into. And so only their super parkour expert, he was going to be the only one that could possibly even have a chance of making it into this building, okay? But then he gets found out and he gets caught and people, somebody shot him in the leg and he was pinned down. And so then the next scene, all the rest of the team just kind of shows up in the building. Like, what? Well, hang on a second. You built up this whole thing as this is the only guy that can possibly make it in here. And then you all just kind of showed up. And then they left him to die for like no reason. Like this whole movie made no sense. At the So so does he watch something like Ocean's Eleven and go, I could do that my way? Uh, the last scene, they escaped on a helicopter. And this is the one that drive, that drove me nuts. It drove me nuts. They all pilot in this helicopter. And the scene, everything about the scene is it is clearly like late afternoon. Okay? This scene... They're on a helicopter. It is late afternoon. And then they're flying the helicopter and it's like sunset. They're like flying off into the sunset. Okay, you know that Michael Bay loves montages of helicopters flying at sunset, right? I do know this. Like you can do like a 10-minute montage of this. But then he showed the same helicopter flying with the same people and it was clearly nighttime. Okay? And then then he showed the same helicopter with the same people and they were kicking the bad guy off of the helicopter into like this pile of refugees that this bad guy had created. And it was the next morning. Ben, this <laughs> helicopter on one tank of gas somehow flew literally all night. And it, I, it, I I just, I couldn't, I couldn't. The suspension of disbelief is completely, yeah, you're talking about cars flipping upside down. Like all of that stuff, like for action movie purposes, I can abstract away. It's like, yeah, they never have to reload. And yeah, bullets are unlimited and people so can survive. So the unforgivable shots. sin is the continuity problem. The, is the, is between time and space. Like, like I don't. I don't care what how long this helicopter can fly for. I want it to be flying at sunset. No, it's the it, I understand all the the action movie tropes, and to an extent, I accept all of them. Sure, but sure, like, like like a gun that never runs out of bullets. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah, but but like if you're gonna set a scene in the middle of nowhere, you can't jump cut and have it in the middle of a city. If you establish that this helicopter is flying at dusk, you can't jump cut and have it have been flying for 24 hours like that's just stupid you don't need to do that all it's doing is breaking my immersion as the viewer yeah and that also makes it feel like when they get it right it must be because somebody put some effort into it but is he does he get it wrong because he's trying to or or are they just like terrible and they just don't care it's like there's no one around going um there's a really big continuity problem here they'd be like yeah they won't even notice. The real unsung heroes of Michael Bay's entire career are his editors. It's like, oh, here, here is 87 hours of car chase with this car being featured. Splice it together and make it somewhat 
like uh, legitimate as a storytelling device. No, I'm going to stick with uh, Occam's Razor here. I think it's that they that they spent all their money on the explosions and the car chases and didn't have any money left for B-roll transition scenes. <laughs> oh, we had a storyboard with all of these great big explosions, and they all cost so much we had no room for anything in between them. <laughs> Okay, I don't know how. I don't know how, Josh, but I think I've talked myself into watching Ambulance, <laughs> which is his 2022 release starring Jake Gyllenhaal. I think I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna watch it. Are you in? No, I'm not gonna watch Ambulance. Uh-huh. Like, like your subconscious is is knows that it's gonna be a terrible movie because I'm looking at the show notes and you have mixed the capitalization in the word ambulance, and so it's typed out in like that sarcastic way that people put on. No, 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 no. That's from the movie poster. It's set in Los Angeles, so they highlighted the letters L A in the middle. Ben, I think I just got a little dumber. Like, absolutely <laughs> not. That's that's a crime against grammar. Like, no, no. No, that that's just, hey, everybody in L.A. come see my movie. Like he doesn't care about the rest of the planet. If everybody in L.A. sees this movie, he'll have made his money back. Well, that's where he's from. He's achieved the American dream. His his net worth is like, I don't know, five hundred million dollars or whatever. And he's he, he could do whatever he wants. Michael Bay feels like all right, there, are, there are a handful of people on the planet that I feel this way. And Michael Bay is one of them. It feels like he made a deal with the devil. Where it's like, I want to be a famous movie director and the devil made it happen, but didn't give him any of the like skills or background in order to make it happen. It just kind of happened supernaturally and there's no good explanation for it. Hey, I'm guilty. I've given him, a, you know, of that $500 million, at least at least 100 is mine. <laughs> I, I, when's the last, did I see a Michael Bay film in the theater? I don't know. I always wait for it to come to streaming. So uh, I, I, get, I definitely saw Armageddon in theaters. Yeah, but we've established and that, Pearl Harbor. Yeah, we've established that you're super old, though. <laughs> like you still go to movie theaters. Good lord, boomer. <sighs> All right. Well, I've had enough of talking about Michael Bay. Next time on the Bad at Magic podcast, we're going to preview. We're coming right up on the uh, Magic Thirty party that we're going to at the end of the month. It's already October, so it's coming up fast. We got to have plans for listeners. We are going to do stuff for you, our dedicated fan base of I can only guess like seven people out there. So yeah, if you are going to if you are going to come to Magic Thirty, like we'd love to see you there, and we will talk at length about all things Magic Thirty, and we'll have a plan. We'll have a plan ready by then. Okay. Um, if you heard us talking about something today, you want to join in on the discussion, whether you want to uh, talk want to join in with Josh and piling on me for being bad at husbanding, or you want to share your favorite uh, Michael Bay movie, uh, you can go on our subreddit, or you can go on our Facebook page. You can see the photo album I put up with every show and join in on the discussion. If you like what we do, consider sharing us with a friend. If you like us, maybe your friends will like us too. If you really want to show us some love, consider taking your phone out of your pocket and giving us a good review on the podcast player of your choice. It's crazy the visibility we can get from that. And if you want a sneak peek of the exclusive bonus episode that we are absolutely going to do about villains that we can really relate to, uh, then consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page. And thank you to all of our current patrons. Ooh, that sounds like fun. And until next time, try to be a little less bad at magic. (laughs) 